Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Does everybody have a, uh, a handout before we begin? They tell the story of a rabbi who was giving a, a lecture, and uh, in the middle of his lecture, one of his prominent congregants stood up and left the lecture hall, and the rabbi was very offended, and he said, uh, he didn't say anything at the time, but uh, sometime later he happened upon this fellow in the street, and he said, sir, why, uh, why didn't you come to my lecture? So he said, well, Rabbi, I needed to take a haircut. So he said, couldn't you take a haircut before the lecture? He said, Rabbi, I didn't need a haircut before the lecture. <laughs> I usually, I tell that joke when I'm speaking for an hour, but I'm going to be speaking for six hours today, so we will indeed be here while our hair is growing long. Um, <laughs> But uh, despite the fact that we're going to be here for six hours and you're going to have courses both today and tomorrow and the next day, you will see that we are only scratching the surface of a very complex topic. The, uh, the entire week is devoted to the field of Jewish medical ethics, uh, the interface of, uh, of medicine and Jewish law, which is an extraordinary interface and perhaps uh, better than most areas of a Jewish law really illustrates the beauty of Jewish law and its ability to address even the most complex and the most modern dilemmas. Uh, as our first session this morning, what I'd like to do is, uh, is give us an appreciation that the field of Jewish medical ethics is not a new one. One might think the field evolved perhaps in the 20th century uh, with some of the things we'll be talking about, genetics this afternoon and organ transplantation and end-of-life issues and respirators and... Uh, and a whole host of modern fascinating dilemmas, but perhaps there was no Jewish medical ethics prior to the 20th century or the 21st century. Well, our objective this morning is to give us an appreciation that the field of Jewish medical ethics is as old as Jewish law itself. Uh, we will be delving into some fascinating historical chapters, uh, chapters which I suspect most of us uh, have not heard of before, uh, and we will gain an appreciation that at every stage of history, whatever the issues were at the time, uh, whatever the medical understanding was at the time, uh, the rabbis were addressing that in a very comprehensive fashion. Our session will be divided into a number of segments. We're obviously not going to speak for three hours straight. Uh, and uh, also, I'd appreciate uh, any comments you have. This is more so part lecture, part Savrusa, uh, and, and interactive. So if you have any questions, obviously, feel free to, uh, to address them. Yes? Just a little background on yourself and your Oh, okay, the question was a little background on myself. Who, uh, who am I? Um, so since we're talking about medical history, I'll give you my, uh, my history. Um, I, uh, I hail from the Midwest, and uh, I, I went to Yeshiva in the Midwest and then came to New York to train at Yeshiva University. Um, I practice currently emergency medicine at Montefiore Medical Center, and I teach uh, ethics uh, and Jewish medical ethics at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And I'm married to a lovely woman named Sarah and, <laughs> and have three uh, gorgeous children uh, named Shmuley, Ari, and Shoshana. And if you ask my son Shmuley, he'd be able to recount for you most of the lectures that I've given. But I couldn't bring him. <laughs> He's nine. <laughs> but I couldn't bring him with me today. So uh, let's turn to our handouts. Uh, the first page of your handout, the, the picture on your handout, we get extra extra prize today for anybody who can tell me where this illustration comes from. <laughs> we have somebody who knows. We'll get we'll get to a little more in, uh, during the course of the lecture. It comes from Vesalius, uh, which is a uh, 
fascinating figure in the history of medicine, which we will deal with um, during the course of our morning lecture. So our, our course will be divided into a number of chapters. We'll, uh, we're going to proceed at the beginning. We're going to proceed chronologically. We're going to start in the Middle Ages, talk about a curious anatomical notion from the Middle Ages, and then we're going to shift our way up into the early 19th, 20th centuries. Then we're going to change tune a little bit and talk about areas specifically where there seems to be conflict between the understanding of Jewish law and science. And our last, uh, our last time, I don't know exactly how long it'll be, but our last section will be devoted towards that interface, which is a very difficult and a very complex one. But to begin our historical chronological tour, we begin in the Middle Ages in our uh, sheet entitled Seven Chambered Uterus. If you look in the upper right-hand corner, <laughs> A section from the Torah which uh, states by Daber Hashem Moshele Mor Daber Obnei Yisrael Emor Ishoki Tazria Zachor. And this is the parsha of Tazria, the parsha which discusses a woman giving birth. When a woman gives forth zera, now what does zera mean? Zera means seed. When a woman gives forth seed, uh, and the commentators throughout the centuries have used this first pasuk, this first phrase, as a springboard for discussion of embryology and f- and reproductive physiology. And one of the sections that we will discuss today, the Talmud actually discusses that. Okay. Right? We're not going to be discussing that aspect today, but the Talmud does, does discuss that. That is one. What we're going to be discussing today is a different context. That's the Talmud. The Torah itself doesn't say that. That's what the Talmud says. We're going to be discussing that in a, in a different, uh, different aspect of that, uh, of that today. But even there, that's, that's an example of the Talmud discussing the physiology of, uh, of reproduction from these psukim in the Torah. So we have a very curious notion which finds its expression in the Middle Ages and some of the rabbinic commentators. Now, now fear not, by the way, there's a lot of Hebrew, obviously, in these packets. Uh, everything will be translated, everything will be discussed. Uh, so, so even if you are not conversant in the Hebrew language, you needn't fear uh, during the course of the day. So we have from the Tosos, in the upper left-hand corner, Ishaki Tazriyav Yodozachor, Rav Avram ben Ezra, that a woman has in her womb, she has seven chambers. Three chambers on the right and three chambers on the left. And if the reproductive seed of the man enters the three chambers on the right, she will give birth to a male child. And if the reproductive seed of the man enters the three chambers on the left, she'll give birth to a female child. And what do you think it's going to be if she uh, conceives in the center chamber? Not twins, but either androgynous or tumtum. Androgynous is hermaphrodite, combination of male and female, or in modern uh, parlance, a child with ambiguous genitalia, neither male nor female. So this was the notion that was discussed <coughs> in the Middle Ages. And you find this notion expressed in a number of other commentators in the Rush, in the underlined section just to the left of the uh, Tosfos. <coughs> Parish of Avon ben Ezra, quoting the same thing. And if you look just underneath that, you'll find it in the Dad Zakenimi Bali Tosfos, in the underlined section there, where it says, Vyesh Omrim Shemotsu Besefer Hateva that uh, was found in the scientific works. Shiyesh Beisha Shiva Nakavim, the woman has seven chambers etc., etc. So I was just reading it from the, the middle of the Da'at Zikini. That's a, we don't have to, yes. Nekavim are chambers or holes? Correct. A nekev is a hole, yes. So the question is, is there a reason that the right is correlated with the male and the left is correlated with the female? 
this is something which has deep historical origins. And throughout all works in medical works in antiquity, there's a strong association of the right with the male and the left with the female. The general simple interpretation is that the right, most people are right-handed. The right is generally stronger than the left. Uh, and, uh, and that's why the, the male is associated with the, uh, with the right and the female is associated with the left. There, in, in the history of embryology, there are discussions about how the male child is conceived and how the female child is conceived and it's, a, it's an interrelationship between right and between left and between uh, the different humors, the, uh, the wet and the dry and the hot and the cold and the, it's a very complex inter interactions which were thought to take place to, uh, to conceive both the male child and the female child. Yes. So the, the question was, were they, were they not doing anatomical dissection? We, we obviously, most people in this room would assume that the womb does not have seven chambers. Were there in fact animals that did have seven chambers or not? That is an excellent question, a question which we'll discuss extensively about the history of anatomical dissection in the, middle, in the middle of today's talk. So the question I ask you, first of all, is does this notion appear prior to the Middle Ages? Do we have it in the Talmud, for example? Is there any notion of the seven-chambered uterus in the Talmud? Now, you, you asked, were they doing animal dissection? In the Talmud, there are extensive discussions of animal dissection. The entire tractate of Chulin, which deals with, uh, with kashras and with, which deals with animals, and we know about the current controversy now with pita and the, uh, and the slaughtering, which is a which uh, has come to the fore in, in, the, recent, uh, in the recent news. Uh, so they were, they were dissecting animals. So the question is, how is it possible that such a notion came about? When did this notion come about? Why does it find its expression in the sources in the Middle Ages? And you don't find it in the Talmud. You don't find it anywhere in the Talmud, and obviously you don't find it today. So the reason is because this notion didn't exist in medical history in the times of antiquity. It's a product of the Middle Ages. So if you studied, and we'll, we'll be referring to these names occasionally throughout the morning, if you studied the works of Hippocrates, or if you studied the works of Galen, uh, who was roughly contemporary with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was redacted the Mishnah in the second century of the Common Era, you will not find any mention of a seven-chambered uterus. But if you study the works of the Middle Ages, you will indeed find this very curious notion. This notion, although it's difficult to trace its origins, probably evolved in the 1100s and the 1200s. It, it, some trace it back to a uh, physician whose name was Michael Scotus. Yes. Uh -huh. some, some, traced it, some traced it back to a physician whose name was Michael Scotus. But it became very prevalent. And the extent to which it became prevalent, to give you an idea, if you trained in medicine in the Middle Ages, you would invariably have learned this as anatomical fact, that a woman had indeed seven chambers of the uterus. And how is that possible? Were they not doing dissection that they realized that the, the womb of the woman did not have seven chambers? So the answer is provisional no. And we'll discuss that in, our, in our, one of our later chapters of the history of medicine about when anatomical dissection became popular. To such an extent that they believed certain notions based on philosophy more so than based on anatomical visual understanding. And, and to give you an idea, yes, the Rambam makes no mention. Yes, the Rambam lived in the 1100s, 1135 to 1205. The Rambam makes no mention of the seven-chambered uterus. Now, it was, it's quoted in the name of Ibn Ezra, by the way. Ibn Ezra is, is earlier than the Rambam, but the Rambam doesn't, doesn't make a mention of the seven-chambered uterus. But to give you an idea of how prevalent the notion was, none other than Leonardo da Vinci in his illustrations, and if you go to Windsor Castle to this very day in England, you will see the extraordinary anatomical illustrations of Leonardo da Vinci. He draws the uterus as having seven chambers. And in manuscripts before you, if you, if you look on your page, I have a number of illustrations from medieval manuscripts. The one in the middle left is not the NBC peacock, contrary to popular belief. 
is actually a, a, a medieval illustration of the seven-chambered uterus, as is the upper left, as is the middle right, as is the bottom left. Um, <coughs> it also finds its expression in a rabbinic source, by the way. In the bottom left-hand corner, there's that circle under Sefer Hagan. Sefer Hagan is a source... Um, is a manu- this is a manuscript that actually as, as yet has not been published. I thank Dr. Orlean from Yeshiva University for providing the manuscript. Uh, this is perhaps the very earliest rabbinic source that deals with this notion, um, a, a, a commentator from the Middle Ages. And I, surprisingly, I actually did not minimize this too much. It, it was written, I, had to, it, I got the, a copy of the manuscript. I had to use a magnifying glass to read it, and I could barely read it. It was written in true micrography. Uh, and, that's, and that's the way they used to write in the, uh, in the Middle Ages, both to conserve paper and to conserve ink, as both of those were very expensive. But to give you another idea of how this idea was incorporated, they discussed it in these sources, uh, which, which are just uh, um, elucidating the, the uh, Torah's uh, phrase of Yishoki Tazriyavil But it was actually used, curiously enough, to explain something which we're going to read this coming week in the Parsha of Shmos. In the Parsha of Shmos, we read Ubenei Yisrael, the, uh, towards the bottom of your handout in the middle, Ubenei Yisrael, Paru vayishvetsu vayirbu vayatzmu bimod maod, vatimoleha oretzosom. There's something which the commentators strive to explain, and that's, you know, we, we just read that 70 people came down to Egypt, and we know that there were hundreds of thousands that left Egypt. So how do you exp- explain this population explosion? We have a tremendous population explosion in a relatively small period of time. So, so the Medrash tells us, and Rashi quotes the Medrash, that for each of these verbs, paru vayishritsu vayirbu vayatsmu bimod maod, that's six, that a, <coughs> each woman in Mitzrayim, each woman in Egypt, gave birth to six tuplets, gave birth to six at a time. And if you envision that every single one gave birth to six at a time, you multiply that, that obviously would create a tremendous explosion in population over a relatively short period of time. Now, sextuplets, you know, 50, 60 years ago would have sounded fantastic. Today, sextuplets is not so extraordinary. We know sextuplets, septuplets, uh, octuplets, nanotuplets. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about issues of reproduction in our, in our next session on, uh, on genetics. But, but some used this notion of the seven-chambered uterus to explain this medrash. Uh, that say the Laderach and the Eilenberg in the bottom right, and it's actually easier to read, and as quoted in the Maharal on the uh, the bottom on the left, says Ve'im Tomar Lama Yoldu Shisha Bekeres Echad Velo Pachos Velo Yoser. So the question is, why did why six? Why did they choose the number six? Not more than six, not less than six. Ein Ruishi Yes Shisha Tamid Becholzman. How is it possible that there should be six every single time they gave birth? The Yesh Meforshim. There are seven chambers in the, uh, in the womb of the woman. Shloshim Yamin, three on the right. Shloshim small, three on the left, which we said before is the, is the uh, understanding of the seven-chambered uterus. And one in the middle. If you give birth from the chambers on the right, it'll be male children. And from the left, it'll be female children. And if you give birth from a child from the center chamber, it'll either be a combined male and female, known as a hermaphrodite, or androgynous, androgynous, like and, andro is the male and genus from gynecology is the female, 
So theoretically, based on this notion of the seven chambers, it was possible anatomically and physiologically for each woman to have given birth to seven at a time, not to six at a time. And this was the bracha of, of, uh, for Klal Yisrael. They gave birth to six, three boys and three girls, and not seven. Because had they given birth to seven, that seventh one, based on this notion of the seven-chambered uterus, would have been either a hermaphrodite or would have been a, uh, a, a one of ambiguous genitalia. Now, this is a very curious anatomical notion. You do not find it after this period of time. It was dispelled in the 1500s uh, by, an, by an anatomist named Berengario de Carpi, who wrote this wonderful anatomical work, which, uh, which has an illustration of a woman with, the, with, the, uh, with a one-chambered uterus standing on a textbook of the ancient, uh, the ancient books which, uh, which talk about the seven-chambered uterus. It was a little too risque to put in the handout, so that's why I didn't, uh, why I didn't put it in. Yes? Berengario de Carpi, D-I-C-A-R-P-I, uh, de Carpi is his, uh, is his name. Um, and this gives you an idea. Now, this doesn't have halachic ramifications. This was incorporating what was then a contemporary notion of anatomy to explain a medrash. It has no real halachic or legal consequence. In our last section, we're going to be talking about areas which, where there seems to be conflict between contemporary understanding of, of science and rabbinic understanding of science, where there's actual conflict with legal consequences, which, which we, need to, uh, we need to address. But here, this is an indication that <coughs> a notion which was extremely prevalent at that time was understood by the rabbis of that time and incorporated by the rabbis of that time. So I'd like to shift into an another historical period. We leave the Middle Ages and we turn our hand out with the following question that was posed to by David Ben Zimra. David Ben Zimra was a remarkable figure of the, 16, uh, of the 16th century. He lived almost the entire 16th century. He was uh, an Egyptian rabbi. He served in uh, positions in Cairo and in Alexandria, Egypt, and I think he was uh, probably believed to be the chief rabbi. Of, uh, of Egypt at that time. And the following question, fascinating question was posed to him. Shall to me many, I was asked, and I'm reading from line uh, one actually, as it's labeled on the top of the handout. <coughs> on what basis do people today in the 16th century use this medicine which is called mumia? And not only do they use it, shalobimokam sakana, they use it in cases where it's not even life-saving. They just use it for convenience, or they're not really convenience, but they use it for illnesses which are not life-threatening illnesses or serious illnesses. But not only that, not only are they utilizing this substance which derives from flesh of a cadaver, they are also trading in it. They're trading this. Mistachim they're dealing and trading in it. And the questioner asks, I mean, this, this material called mumya derives from the flesh of a corpse of a human body. Is it not prohibited for us to derive benefit from the corpse of the human body? The Kaimalon, as we know, it's prohibited to derive benefit. And the Gemara learns this out from a, a number of phrases of Thomas Shamir and Miriam. <coughs> so we'll discuss in a moment exactly what it was used for and what it was. What was this substance called mumia? And he's not the only one to deal with this. But before we discuss some of the other sources that, that bring down this notion of mumia, 
let us spend a few moments and discuss what mumia is and where mumia comes from. Yes, Rabbi David Ben Zimra, known pseudonymously, actually by the acronym Radbaz, Rabbi David Ben Zimra, and he has lengthy responses that are that are used extensively for uh, for modern discussions of Jewish law. Where did this substance mumia come from? If you look <coughs> in the pharmaceutical works of antiquity, from the first century of the Common Era, in the works of Dioscorides, who is considered one of the greatest of pharmacists of, uh, in the history of medicine, you will find in his lengthy list of medicines a medicine that was called mum or mumia. This mum or mumia is believed to be probably a Persian word. The etymology is, is debated by historians. But it refers to a black asphalt tarry substance. This substance, mumia, was thought to have tremendous medicinal value. They used it for a whole variety of things. They used it, uh, they, they rubbed it on the skin, they rubbed it, uh, they ingested it for gastrointestinal illnesses. It was a veritable panacea. It was used for many, many different things. It was thought to have such great medicinal value that the Egyptians co-opted this material to use in their embalming process. Because they thought, if it helps all these people when they're alive, <laughs> assuredly, in the world to come, after they get exhumed from the pyramids, they will, uh, it'll surely help them. Is there, a there is a direct correlation. There is a direct correlation. And indeed, and we'll explain in a minute how there became, it came to be a correlation. So if you go to the, if you go, for example, um, and, and there is some historical debate how much of the mumia was in, of this substance mum or mumia was indeed incorporated into the, uh, into the embalming process. Some historians say it was, some historians say it wasn't. Um, but if you go today to the, you know, down the block to the uh, Metropolitan Museum, or if you go to the British Museum, or if you go to uh, northern Italy in uh, Turin to the uh, Egyptology Museum, and you see mummies that have been partially unraveled, you'll see that they are pitch black. Pitch black. Pitch is tar. Why are they black? They're black because they, in the embalming process, was a tarry substance, mumia. And that's why they, it's not because their bodies have aged or because their bodies have, uh, have decomposed over the centuries and that's why they're black. They're black because the substances used in the embalming process was pitch black, which was called this, this mumia. And what gradually happened over a period of time is this fascinating transference of the medicinal value from this substance, which was just a mineral, asphalt, which was used and ingested, to the actual body, which was embalmed with this mineral and with this substance. So there evolved a belief, and, a and as you mentioned, that's why the very embalmed body itself be became identified with this substance and is called a mummy from, from this medicinal substance called mumia. Yes. No, no, no. The, the, the mummification process, the, the question was, did, did one body have to be desecrated to mummify another body? The mummification used this tar substance called mumia. Oh, right, right. No, 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 I understand your question. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. When, so they, they believed that this mumia, that the value, the medicinal value of the mumia was transferred to the, to the human body that was embalmed with the substance called mum or mumia. And to such an extent where they actually believe that if you ingested an extract from the ancient Egyptian embalmed mummies, you would benefit from this mum. And they forgot 
that the original substance was not associated with the human body, that it was just mind in these other places. And they actually, they actually sold and, uh, and ingested extracts from the human body. And if you look on your upper right-hand corner of your handout, you'll see a container of this very substance, and it was called Mumia Alexandria, Mumia which derived from the city of Alexandria, and it was, uh, and it was an extract from human remains. Um, now, we actually learn about embalming in these times in the Torah. We learn about the embalming of Yaakov and the embalming of Yosef, where they embalmed with this substance called mumia. Um, I couldn't, couldn't verify, I guess. Uh, but there, there are extensive discussions about what the nature of their embalming was. Were they embalmed to the extent that Egyptian kings were embalmed? Does that violate the laws of the Torah, which say you shouldn't desecrate the body uh, and we all, and, and we're going to discuss in a short while about autopsies and the uh, and the issues of autopsies. So could they have indeed been embalmed? Do we not uh, believe that the body is, is sacrosanct and shouldn't be touched and shouldn't be uh, embalmed? So a number of the commentators actually say that the the type of embalming they underwent was a modified embalming and not a complete embalming. And there's a whole host of uh, issues on that. Was it based on carbon? On carbon? Yeah, pr- presumptively it's, it's a carbon, and other minerals were, were included in it as well. Right, asphalt, asphalt is hydrocarbon, right, and, and, and these, these pitch blacks have the carbons, and assumedly this moom has carbon as well, yes. Right, tar, exactly. No, no, the pitch remained, the pitch remained on the mummies, c- remained continually on the mummies, and there evolved a time where they believed that taking the mummy, the human body, had the medicinal value of this mumia, and that's what they used to do in the time period, exact time period that the Red Baz was practicing, yes. Excellent question. So initially... And we'll get to it in a moment. Initially, it came from the old Egyptian mummies. And that's where it came from, the ancient Egyptian mummies in Egypt, in the, in the areas that we are probably now visiting. Well, not we visiting, but that many people are visiting in Egypt and the pyramids. Probably some of those pyramids that are empty from bodies that, that underwent grave robbing throughout the centuries, some of those were grave robbed for the, those mummies, which were ultimately used for the mummy practice. Yes. Oh, there was Zephes. It was made from tar. That's an excellent question. Can you repeat the question? Sure. The question, the question was, is there any significance to the fact that Moshe's uh, cradle was made with tar? So is that perhaps an allusion to, this, to, this, uh, to the tar? I, I, it's an excellent question. I haven't thought about it. It could very well be. It could very well be that there's some association. Perhaps some people in the Middle Ages writing about that may have even alluded to this, uh, to this mummy substance. Yes. Yes, it is not the same thing. Not the same thing. The thing that you rub on your face, that everybody comes back with these pictures, the black face from, uh, from the Dead Sea, that is not the mumia substance. <coughs> so the Radvaz, in a methodology which, which is continually employed, and this is part of the purpose of this introductory lecture, is that the way a question in medical halacha is addressed is extremely important. And the methodology that is applied today in the 21st century is the exact same methodology which has been applied in every century preceding our own. And what the Radbaz did before he answered the question is he went to a pharmacist and he said, how do you make this stuff? I see the mumia from this container in the upper right-hand corner, mumia Alexandria, but how does it get from point A to point B? How does it get from extracting it from the human remains from the ancient Egyptian mummies? How does it get to the pharmacist's shelf? So he was told that it is... uh, 
pulverized and mixed with multiple spices. It's mixed with uh, cinnamon and honey, etc., etc., many different types of spices. So he answered, and, the, and, all, and most of these um, excerpts, by the way, on your handout are just small excerpts from very lengthy responses. I want you to think that you have the entire text in front of you. Um, there, there's far more than, than is in our page. But he says, reading from line six in our handout um, of the Radbaz, Tshuva, Isra Achila, he said, it is permitted to ingest this substance that comes from mummy. Why is it permitted? Because it loses its original, it, the origins become changed. It becomes pulverized and mixed with so many different spices that it loses its association, it loses the identity of the original uh, mumia from which it was derived, the original mummy from which it was derived. The kol ide samim, and it's mixed, mixed with multiple spices. Shaharei hamumia, what is it derived? Hibasar hachanutin, it is embalmed flesh. Shechontino sobekami mine samim, and they use many different spices. Kidei laha amid suraso, in order to make it firm and solid, so that it's a, it can be something which can be used for medicinal purposes. Um... The Chazalios Kein Zephes. Zephes, actually, we talked about the Zephes, the tar. And it becomes just like a tarry substance, the Einbo Israchila. And there's no prohibition of ingesting it because it's so distant and it's so far removed and so unrelated to the original, um, <coughs> the original uh, um, body from which it was derived. And he, he engages in a discussion about wh- the way you're allowed to ingest it. And these are uh, halachic tangent. Are you allowed to ingest something which is prohibited according to, the, to either biblically or, or according to the Torah if you ingest it in a fashion from which you do not derive benefit? So if you ingest it enclosed in something, if you ingest it mixed with something that's bitter and you don't actually taste it and don't actually enjoy it, are you allowed to, to, to ingest something from which you're not allowed to derive benefit? Yes. So the question, right, so the question is how do you define benefit? Benefit in this sense is a restricted definition. It means enjoyment from the ingestion. Yes, you are deriving benefit, a medicinal benefit, but that's that's shalokiderech hanaaso. That's the type of benefit which is not the benefit for which this was intended, for which food is intended. This is intended as medicinal value, but food in general, anything which you put in your mouth, the derech hana, the way in which it's supposed to be enjoyed or derived benefit, is like food, and you should taste it, and, and it should be an enjoyable taste. That's how it's how it's derived. So, so the question is: Is cannibalism uh, is cannibalism prohibited or not? Um, well, in a certain sense, this is a loose, loose form of cannibalism. You're right. They're eating the, the remains of the human body. So, so I mean, I haven't heard it put and quite that way. Yeah, right. Well, that's that's actually part of the discussion as well. So the Radbaz says yes. Right now, pork insulin and uh, is not ingested. But the question is, can you ingest something which is not kosher? You, it's actually in, injected, not ingested. So it's it's placed into the body. So you you are deriving benefit. Uh, from something which is not kosher, but but for medicinal value, and this is actually something that will come out more more in the in the next chapter, the chapter after that. Um, even though there may be prohibitions involved, if it's for medicinal purposes and if it's to save a life, you're allowed to violate almost the entire Torah in order to save a life. So something, if the only thing that you can do, for, the only medicine that you have uh, for your for the treatment of your acute disease is treif, you're allowed to eat it. There's no discussion. Now, it just so happens that that uh, that these, this porcine insulin is um, is uh, is injected. It's not eaten. We also, by the way, use use pigs for multiple other things. Valves, heart valves that are transplanted into the human heart, 
are porcine valves derived from the pig. You're going to have a lecture, I believe, tomorrow or the next day on organ transplantation, the new frontier of xenotransplantation, transplanting from animals to the human being. The animal, what do you think the animal that's most likely compatible with the human being? The pig. The pig heart is just anatomically, size-wise, and for a variety of other reasons, is considered the most analogous to the human heart. And, and there are studies going on right now about whether one can transplant the pig heart into a human being. All those things, in short, there's obviously a whole lot of discussion, those will all be permitted. They're all for the sake of saving life. Now, there are gradations. They're, they're all permitted when it's pikuach nefesh, and we're going to talk about pikuach nefesh extensively, both... Uh, both this morning and this afternoon, um, when we talk about uh, stem cell research, actually, we'll talk about Bikoff Nefesh. But there are gradations of Bikoff Nefesh, and there are also things which are, are not life saving. Like to take a Tylenol, for example, if you have a headache, you can't necessarily have a trafe Tylenol for a headache. You can have a trafe uh, medicine if you're suffering from heart failure and, and you will not live otherwise. Uh, but you, you don't necessarily have a license to violate the law for conditions which are not life threatening. So that's, that's, an important, uh, that's an important distinction. So here we have the Radbaz answering a complex question, incorporating what was then modern understanding of science. And he actually poskined that uh, it was permitted for them to ingest this material. But he's, he met with some opposition. And if you look in the, in the left, uh, of the middle of the page, from the Ginas Verodium, and I apologize, I erroneously put this, it was written by Rabbi Jacob Castro, it, it was not. It was written by Avraham Mordechai Halevi in the late 17th century. And, um, and I'll just read a line. It's obviously small and difficult to read, but I'm not going to read the whole thing inside. But he says, uh, al, al hamumia, the very first line, Nishalti, al hamumia should be mitzrayim im yeshba din tuma legabe kohen v'imutul ochla. Are you allowed to eat it? And is a kohen allowed to touch it? Uh, now, one thing which the Radbaz had mentioned is that they traded in this substance. Now, if you look at secular historians, you will find that who do you think was in charge of the mummy trade in the Mideast? The Jews were in charge of the mummy trade in the Mideast. And the Jews, almost all sources that discuss this mummy trade all refer to the fact that the Jews were involved heavily in this trading. And it's, it's likely, and it's conjecture, obviously, that in Rabbi David ben Zimmer's congregation in, uh, in Cairo, there were people that were involved in the mummy trade. And this is what they did. This, is the, this was how they made their living. So they were discussing not only can you eat it, can you put it on your body, can you derive benefit, but you can also, there's also prohibition of deriving benefit by selling. If you sell this substance, you're not allowed to derive benefit by selling a human body. This also relates, by the way, to organ donation. If, uh, are you allowed to sell your organs? If you want to be a kidney donor, can you receive compensation? If you want to... If you want to donate, there, there are a number of these programs, for example, that, uh, that want to suggest either tax compensation or direct financial compensation if you allow your, your loved one to serve as an organ donor after they die. Are you allowed to receive that compensation? Is that hana min hames? Are you deriving benefit from a corpse? Is that indeed illicit or is that not illicit? And, and, and parenthetically, it probably is illicit, at least from the cadaver, while compensation from the living donor might indeed be permitted. Um, so, uh, so he actually argued. He said, you're not allowed to ingest. His conclusion was, I disagree with the Rebbe David ben Zimra. I read his tshuva, the Ginyas Rajim says. And I said, no. I said, not only is it prohibited for medicinal value because it's still enough related to the original source of the human body, but it is also prohibited 
for, for a Kohen to, to trade in the substance because it still maintains its tumah. It still maintains its impurity. And we'll talk about impurity in our, in our section of, uh, of the anatomy of the human body. And likewise, in the bottom left-hand corner, Rabbi uh, Yehuda Rosen in the Mishnah Lamelech, which is a commentary on the Rambam, also has three or four discussions. And this is in your standard Rambam, by the way. This is not an esoteric source. Mishnah Lamelech comes in the conventional Rambam. And in three or four cases, he talks about this mumia. That's, and just allow me a parenthetical comment here. That's why it's sometimes important to have an appreciation of medical history. Because absent that appreciation, you'd have absolutely no clue what Rabbi David Ben Zimra is talking about, what mumia is, what these whole discussions are. You wouldn't have a clue unless you have an understanding of, of the contemporaneous medical history. It also applies to many, many other areas where the rabbis mention uh, areas of physiology and, and contemporary, uh, contemporaneous notions of their understanding of science, which without an understanding, you wouldn't have any idea what they're, uh, what they're referring to. So here also, in the bracketed section in the third line, that the Kohanim are selling, again, a prevalent practice of the Jews engaged in the mummy trade. Um, is it permitted for them to trade in this? Is it not permitted for them to trade in this? So he actually passed him that it was indeed permitted to trade. He said it was okay. So He said you were allowed to trade. He actually he said you were allowed to trade. Um, the Rabbi David Ben Zimra said you were allowed to trade. Abraham ben Mordechai Levi and the Ginas Radim said you are not allowed to trade. You're not allowed to ingest. And they, and they all discuss these, these issues of, uh, of Tuma Vitara. And if you look, in, in another interesting mention of this mumia, and this gets to our question of the, uh, uh, that you asked actually about whether it's the original Egyptian mummies or, non, or non-Egyptian bodies or, or bodies that were just bodies at that time. <coughs> and if you look in the Masa Hashem by Rabbi Ezra Ashkenazi in his parish on Chumash, and the context of this discussion actually is the case of, of uh, Lot's wife. We know that Lot, Lot left Sodom with his wife, and, uh, and they were crossing across these plains, and the directive of the Torah was very specific. It says, don't you dare turn around and don't stop. Keep going, don't turn back. So he tries to explain this concept of not stopping as they're leaving this area in the midst of these desert storms and sands. And Ashkenazi says, Ki adua kasher yolicha ruach, so he says, it is evident if there's a snowstorm or a windstorm, a sandstorm, if you, if you stop in one case, in one place, you'll be overcome with either the snow or the sands and they will completely cover you and you'll be stopped dead in your tracks. If you keep walking and you don't stop, continuous motion, you won't be overcome with the sands. It'll be difficult, obviously, but you won't be overcome with the sands. And that's why he explains, and I'll skip um, to line 15, see on the, on the, the side, towards the end of the line, the ad hayom, the ad hayom yadua kelifamim asher yikre leish shelo yachol lehinatzel that a man who's walking in the deserts and can't survive, doesn't make it out alive, and he gets covered by the sands, and another wind comes after this storm passes, and he'll be exposed. This person who died in his tracks will be exposed. 
And the wanderers, the nomads, will see that this person had died from a sandstorm. And they'll take this body and they'll bring it to the doctors. And what are the doctors going to use it for? The Corino so mumia, and they call it mumia. Now, what happened in the mummy trade? <coughs> like all, uh, not, unfortunately, fortunately, not all, but like occasionally we see, there was a scandal in the mummy trade. What was the scandal in the mummy trade? We're all thinking, how are they going to get enough mummies from ancient Egypt? If you have this bustling, if you have this bustling trade and you're farming out to the entire Mideast, and mummy is a very popular drug, I mean, not to compare it to Vioxx or Celebrex or anything like that, but if you're farming it out and you're making a lot of money, there's tremendous, tremendous pressure to produce the mummies. And if you don't have enough Egyptian mummies, what are you going to do? So they, they, they resorted to another alternative, and that alternative was to take bodies that had recently deceased, that were desiccated in the sands of the Sahara, and to use those, and to pawn those off as mummy. So what happened is, someone actually found out, and, and that, that practice is discussed exactly by Rebbe Leazar Ashkenazi, that they found bodies that, were, that, that had dried out in the sands of the deserts, and those were used as mummies. So that practice... <coughs> was actually was actually probably had gone on for a relatively long period of time without being noticed. What happened was there was one disgruntled employee of a Jewish factory, and he actually, as 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 the secular sources recounted, as the non-Jewish sources recounted, that employ, the employer tried to put pressure on the employee to convert to Judaism, and that employee refused to convert to Judaism. And this, his employer was manufacturing these fraudulent mummies. And he went to the king of Egypt and he said, I want you to know my Jewish employer is pawning off these mummies. And they're really, they're not real mummies. And they sent people from the king. They sent uh, emissaries from the king. And they, they found out there was indeed fraudulent mummy. And they exploded the whole mummy trade. And, and they imposed a tremendous tax on all those people that were, uh, that were selling mummies. Uh, and as a result, the mummy trade died a very short period thereafter. And you'll find, by the way, evidence of this, of this dis distinction between the original mummy and the fraudulent mummy. In the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a container called mumia ver. Ver means genuine, certified, true mummy, not to, with hashgacha, right, with OU hashgacha, not to be confused with the, uh, with the fraudulent mummy. Well, they, the, the reason is they thought that the medicinal value, I mean, obviously it's far removed from the original source, but they thought that the value was with the spices that were used for embalming, original Egyptian embalming. So if you take a fresh body, that, according, even according to the medicine of the time, would not have been considered to have medicinal value because it wasn't embalmed with all the spices which they embalmed in ancient Egypt, which were thought to have the great uh, medicinal value. Uh, the question was, is there a distinction between whether it's a Jewish body or a non-Jewish body? And yes, that distinction does find its expression in these very sources that we mentioned, both from a deriving benefit perspective, and there's a machlokas, there's a debate whether you're allowed to derive, whether the prohibition of deriving benefit from a body applies only to a Jewish body or whether it applies to a non-Jewish body, and with respect to generating impurity. A Kohen is not allowed to expose himself to Tumah. There's a debate whether that extends to exposing yourself to Tumah from a non-Jewish corpse as well. So yes, that does, it does factor in, and there are, there are extensive discussions about it. Oh, all parts of the body. All parts of the body. It wasn't any specific part of the body. They, oh, they, they mixed it with tar. They mixed it with tar and asphalt. Yeah, they mixed it with asphalt-like substance. Carbons, hydrocarbons. Uh, uh, probably not. Probably not. The prohibition is deriving benefit from the corpse is only from, uh, from a human body. You're allowed to eat. We all eat, uh, not all of us perhaps, but many of us eat uh, dead animals, uh, extracts from dead animals when we serve chicken or beef.
Oh, why couldn't they? I guess uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, and if you go to these same museums that I mentioned before, you'll see not only humans were embalmed, but cats were embalmed. Uh, you'll see embalmed cats. And I guess there's, a, there's a, this obsession with cats. It's, it's interesting. We talked about embalming cats 2,000 years ago. The very first animal that was cloned, uh, you may have read about this, was, was a cat. This woman who had lost her cat of 17 years, and she, and she cloned her cat for $50,000. $50,000 she spent to clone her cats. Fine, give them to hate. She can use her money as she sees fit. Well, we're not going to talk. Actually, you're going to have a whole lecture on cloning, I believe, also. Peggy Kaplan is going to speak about, uh, speak about cloning over the next few days as well. But just to give you an idea, and this absolutely fascinated me, of, of the full circle of this substance called mumia, I gave, a, uh, I gave a talk in Jacksonville, Florida, and one of the chapters I mentioned was this mumia chapter, and I got an email from this, uh, from this woman, uh, this uh, research scientist who was from Uzbekistan, and she told me that to this very day there is a substance that's sold in Uzbekistan, which the power and belief in, this, in the value of this substance has, has, has been perpetuated for thousands of years. And she actually told me a story. She said her husband suffered from a medical disease when they came to America just a few short years ago. The doctors didn't have a clue what it was. They went to every doctor in the world. Nobody could cure her. So she's sent away from mumia, from her country, and she said she gives him you know, two pills of mumia every six hours, and lo and behold, he's magically cured, and he's doing much, much better. She actually tried to get me to market this stuff in New York. She said, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, she's a research scientist. Well, listen, she's looking for extra money. You know, it's hard to get money as a research scientist. The power of belief. So it's still it's continued for thousands of years. And this, this I assume, although I, I don't understand the ingredients, but I assume there's no human extract in this one. I assume this goes back to the original mumia of Dioscorides, which was derived from minerals and hydrocarbons and, and, uh, and some black tarry substance. <coughs> so so ends our chapter of mumia. I think maybe we should take actually this, maybe we should just take a five-minute uh, stretch break. I think it's getting a little hot in here. Maybe we could open a few windows and then we'll and then we'll continue. Uh, no windows. Okay, I don't want to get in that discussion. I didn't say anything. <laughs> we'll take we'll take a five-minute stretch break and then we'll we'll continue with the anatomy of halacha. Last chapter is an interesting uh, interesting tangent. I apologize for being so. Uh, I apologize for being so tangential. Um, although I find actually some of the tangents are more interesting than the, uh, than the main discussions. The, uh, the endeavor of trying to describe biblical material from a contemporary medical perspective is something that's been going on for many hundreds of years. And we talked about Lot and Lot's wife. On your handout, it's very small, but I'll, I'll read it to you any, uh, so you know what it is. On the Mumia page, in the bottom left-hand corner, is one such endeavor. People, for example, uh, have written extensively in the medical literature about uh, the illness of every, everybody in Tanakh. Um, so Yaakov's illness, he had sciatica, he was touched by the, uh, during the fight, and Yitzhak's blindness was due to diabetes, and, uh, and so-and-so had gout, uh, King Asa in Tanakh had gout, and, uh, and a whole variety of things. Um, but someone actually embarked on a, on a biochemical analysis. I know we have organic uh, chemists and uh, other uh, scientists here uh, might find this interesting um, to explain why it is that Lot's wife turned to a pillar of salt. And the, uh, the, the title of the, of the article, which is on the bottom there and very small, is The Chemical Death of Lot's Wife. And it's, uh, it was written by a Dr. Klotz from a Northwestern University, um, published uh, in uh, July of '88. And he actually described that the, em the atmosphere was filled with, uh, 
<laughs> with many different chemicals at that time, which ultimately led to the, uh, which predisposed Lot's wife to becoming a solid block of, uh, of material. And he describes it as follows. He says, thus by turning around in her direction of flight, Mrs. Lot exposed herself instantly to stresses that generated immediate enormous escalations in concentrations of calcium and CO2. So that the critical limits specified by equation six, which he discusses in his article, were exceeded overwhelmingly and instantaneously. Internal, massive, pervasive crystallization of calcite followed immediately. Mrs. Lote died instantly of Riger calcium carbonatus and turned into a rigid block of calcite. Since the prevailing winds from the Dead Sea always carry along a spray of salt, which is accumulated on this pillar, succeeding generations to modern times have testified that the column is a block of salt. So that's one, uh, one explanation. <laughs> right, she very well might have been used as mumia afterwards. <laughs> this is not the part. There actually is a journal called the Journal of Irreproducible Results <laughs> for those scientists, which is a wonderful spoof journal. This, this was not in the Journal of Irreproducible Results. This was in uh, the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. No slouch, a journal. So we turn to page four of our handout, shifting chronologically into the... Uh, to a somewhat later period, 17th, perhaps 17th through, uh, through 20th century, 17th through 19th centuries. But even though that's the, the focus, we're going to turn our eyes back to some Mishnaic and Talmudic texts. Um, if I were to ask you how many limbs there are in the body as a Jew, how would you answer that question? How many avarim, how many limbs? 248. Reish Memches, Ramach. 248 limbs in the body. Now what we're going to discuss now is where this notion comes from. The Mishnah in Oalos uh, reads as follows. Masayim v'arboim u'shmona evarim ba'odom. There are 248 limbs in the man. Shloshim b'fisas aregel. 30 in the, in the foot. Shisha b'chol esva. 6 in every digit. Asar b'karsol, ten in the ankle, shnayim b'shok, etc. Two in the uh, in the calf, chamisha barkuva, five in the knee, echad b'yerech, one in the uh, thigh, slosha b'kotlis, three in the hip, etc. etc. So the question is, why is the Mishnah telling us telling us this? Now the, the Mishnah and the Talmud are not medical texts. Why do they care about telling us that there are 248 limbs? What do I need to know? So this actually relates to the discussion we're going to have later on about scientific knowledge in the Talmud. The reason science is mentioned in the Talmud is not for the sake of science itself. The mission in the Talmud have no desire to teach us science. It is not a science textbook. So then why are they telling us this? They're telling us this because this mission appears in the Mishnah called Ohalos. Ohalos, the entire Mishnah, the entire tractate, and it's a very complex tractate, deals with tuma, deals with purity and impurity for kohanim, for the kohen, for the members of the priestly tribe. There are different levels of tuma. There's tumas maga, which is tuma generated by direct physical contact with the corpse. There's tumas masa, 
which is tumor generated by carrying, supporting the weight of a corpse, even though you are not in direct contact with the corpse. And then there's tumas ohel. Ohel literally means tent. So tumas ohel is, is tumor that's generated by being in the same enclosure as a corpse. And if a Kohen is in the same room as a corpse, they are, not allow, they, are, they are actually not allowed to be in that room, but if they're in that room, it's, they violate a prohibition of exposing themselves to Tuma. Now, this has ramifications, for example, for Kohanim that attend medical school. Um, and there are many interesting discussions about that because anatomical dissection is part of medical training, and we'll talk about how that evolved as well. So then why, why is the Mishnah telling us there are 248 limbs in the body? Because the, the law is, the halacha is, that an entire corpse under an enclosure generates impurity, but not only an entire corpse generates impurity, the majority of the limbs of one corpse generates impurity. And in order to know what the majority of the limbs of the body is, you have to know the total number of the limbs of the body. So there are 248 limbs in the body, so a simple majority of 248 is 125. And the halacha is, if a Kohen is in an enclosure, underneath the same enclosure and underneath the same tent as the majority of a corpse, that generates impurity and he violates the law. So that is the reason why the, Torah, the Mishnah tells us there are 248 limbs in the body. <coughs> There's a very curious passage in the Talmud. Right, so we, that's what we discussed. Uh, we, we alluded to that briefly in the mumia issue. So how does this, is tumor generated by a non-Jewish body as well? So the law here is not absolute. It's not clear. There's debate. We said there's three types of tumor, and, and there are different positions which apply either all those forms of tumor to a non-Jew, none of those forms of tumor to a non-Jew, or only some of those forms of tumor to a non-Jew. So when you take your tours in Eretz Yisrael and you go to the, uh, around the walls of the old city, and they, uh, and they say that the, uh, the Mashiach is going to come from the, uh, the southern wall, I believe, and the, and the Arabs built a cemetery there because they, they know that uh, he's going to be a Kohen and uh, he's not allowed to, to, uh, to uh, have uh, exposed himself to impurity. So they say, well, that's not a problem because it's too much ohel, and uh, too much ohel is not, uh, doesn't generate a problem for non-Jews. But it is indeed a machlokis, it is indeed a debate um, whether non-Jews generate all forms, no forms, or only some of the forms of impurity. Yes? It has to be from the same body. Okay. Yeah. It has to be from the same body. Correct. It's not just under 25 absolutes. It's, under 20, it's the majority of that, of one particular body. And there's actually, I don't have it here, but there's actually a passage in the, in the, in the Gemara, or it might be the Tosefta, actually, which, uh, which says that they called in, they, they had a group of bones or a group of limbs that was sitting in an area, and, and they, they were uncertain whether they derived from one body or from multiple bodies, and they called in some contemporary... Uh, uh, Greek physicians to, to analyze the bones to determine whether in fact Todus Harofe, they called him in and they asked him, do, do these derive from one body or do they derive from multiple bodies? And he determined that they were from one body and consequently they would generate impurity. So that is the, that is the difference. This tomb of the Tara issue has, has many modern day ramifications which we're not going to have time to discuss. Uh, Kohanim to this very day are still prohibited from exposing themselves to Tuma. Um, one of the more fascinating applications, this notion of Tumas Ohel goes both up and down. Um, so, you're, uh, so, for example, Cohen can't go into a cemetery because he's walking over a grave. Uh, and the, tum- the Ohel from the, the impurity generates Bokea Adlo Shamayim, goes up to the skies, I mean, literally up to the skies. So, in our days of, of modern air travel, um, there are discussions whether a Cohen can fly over a Jewish cemetery. Because even flying over a Jewish cemetery, the coin is exposed to uh, exposed to impurity, and some of the 
the routes, the flight routes of El Al uh, were actually diverted based on this concern uh, to circumvent some of the Jewish cemeteries. Now you could argue the entire state of Israel is a Jewish, there, there are probably bodies all over the entire state of Jewish uh, of Israel, uh, but at least areas that they know are Jewish cemeteries, the, uh, the flight path actually diverts around them out of this concern for Kohanim flying. And it, it is a, a complex issue, but uh, one of the fascinating applications of modern issues of Tomb of Atara. Yes, that is, that, is an excellent, that is an excellent question. Um, and I have to give that some thought. Yes, I mean, it, it would potentially be an issue. It would potentially be concerned if the Kohen is in a building where someone dies. Yeah, in the same, the same apartment building, I mean, it, the laws of, of Tumasol are, are complex, but if, if there's openings throughout the entire building, doors that are not closed, um, it could potentially be a problem. It depends. There are interesting things which might make it not a problem, uh, but it could potentially be a problem. There are problems with Kohanim going to visit a modern-day hospital, and hospitals in Israel, Shari Tzedek in particular, was built prospectively with that concern of a Kohen exposing themselves to Tuma in mind. So there are special um, designs which went into the building um, so that the doors close the doors are sealed, for example, when you go into one area, the doors behind you will close before the other doors open. Uh, and that, that prevents the tumor from escaping uh, if there is tumor in the building. And that's a simplification, but there are a lot of complex laws in this entire book written by, uh, by Rav Levi Yitzhak Halperin on how he uh, contributed to the architectural design of Shari Tzedek based on the laws of, of tumor Vitara. Yes, revolving. revolving doors might solve the problem also, yes. Uh, the answer is potentially yes. Every, every house has to be analyzed. And if you read the Mishnah Olos, the Mishnah Olos is exceedingly detailed about all types of these kinds of scenarios. If there's a hole in the wall, how big the hole in the wall has to be. If there's a door, is the, 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 the tumor likely to, to go out that door? How do, big the door has to be? How big the enclosure has to be? How big the overhang has to be? Very, very detailed uh, stuff. Yes, John? Yeah, it's an, that's an excellent question. The question is, how, how do you define tumor from a chemical perspective? Um, it, in a certain sense, it eludes definition. I guess if you wanted to analogize it to a contemporary substance, you could call it a gas um, and, and see how, the, uh, and see how the, uh, that plays out, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a perfect analogy, uh, it, but it is a metaphysical concept. It, it, it would be difficult to pin it down purely from a physical perspective. Yes? Right, right, right. If a Kohen knows... <coughs> now, the Kohen... I mean, usually when someone, uh, when someone passes away in this hospice, the body is removed relatively quickly. Um, so right, so you don't know. So it, the truth is you can't, does the Kohen have to leave the building if someone's in a hospice? I mean, I'm not going to paskin, but, but the assumption is you know, the, the likelihood of the Kohen actually being there when the person expires, it's not, it's not 100% and the body will be moved relatively quickly. So, but, but if the Kohen does know that there is a body in the building, the Kohen should exit the building because the prohibition of exposure to Tuma is a, is a continuous prohibition. So continued exposure is continued prohibition. So if you know that you're, expo that you're, that you're in a tumor exposure circumstance, you, uh, you have to exit the building. And the question is, the Kohen used to be able to purify himself. What's the substitute? There is no substitute. The Kohen today remains impure until the times of uh, Mashiach, until the times... Now, I know there are people in Israel that have produced a paraduma in one of the kibbutzim there. They've produced a paraduma. It's debatable whether it's a halakhli valid paraduma or not. Um, but uh, right now the Kohen and indeed all of us are, are in a continued state of impurity. We're all to make team and, if, and uh, we should live for the times that the Beis Amikdash should get rebuilt. In order for any of us to enter the Beis Amikdash, we would all have to purify ourselves with the ashes of the, uh, okay. of so the Paraduma. The question is, <clears throat> do you 
Yes, yes, excellent question. If you're already tame, and if you're already tame, and there is one position like this, which we don't rely on for halacha, so if you're in a state of tame, tuma in perpetuity, so then why should any further tuma add any further prohibition? So the answer is, that's an excellent question, that is precisely one of the issues which is debated by the rabbinic authorities, and the, the rivet actually is, is the only person who mentions it as a theoretical possibility, that once you are, once you are tame, um, there may be no further prohibition of repeated exposures to tuma, but nobody, uh, nobody possums like that. We do not, we do not uh, consider that the law today. Um, but, that, but that is a good point, uh, a point well taken. So let's turn to the, the, uh, the bottom section and this curious passage from the Gemara in, in Bechoros. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Amar Shmuel, Ma'ase b'talmidov Rabbi Shmuel, she'sholku zona achas Um, we have the case of Rabbi Huda Amar Shmuel. The, the students of Rabbi Shmuel performed an anatomical dissection. Lo and behold. Now, why did they perform an anatomical dissection? On who did they perform an anatomical dissection? Um, they, they performed it on a, a zona, a prostitute that was sentenced to death by the king of Egypt, who was sentenced to die anyway, and was killed by them, was killed by the Egyptians. And they performed a... Uh, in a, some form of dissection. Now, the word sholak uh, is variously translated as dissection, as boiling. They boiled the parts of the body. And why did they do this? They did this presumptively to verify this Mishnah that we just read. The Mishnah says there's 248 limbs. So they said, well, we have a body at our disposal. Let us do a dissection and see if indeed there are 248 limbs. So they said, Budku, they examined, Umatsu, how many did they find? Masayim v'chamishim u'shnayim. 252. So we just learned that the Mishnah says there's 248. So how do you get this, 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 this discrepancy? There seems to be a discrepancy. So the Gemara says, Shema b'isha badaktim. Maybe you dissected a woman. This was indeed a woman. So maybe this discrepancy is attributable to the fact that this was a woman and the body parts of a woman are different than the body parts of a man. Which is obviously true, and the, especially the reproductive organs of a woman are, are different than the reproductive organs of a man. But it obviously doesn't refer to bones. Because the bones of a man are exactly the same as the bones of a woman. Exactly the same number. The curvature of the spine is different, the curvature of the pelvis is different. <coughs> but they are exactly the same. So this test, testimony to a number of different things, which we're not going to d- deal with uh, extensively now, but the fact that they were doing some kind of experimental procedure is, is interesting. The fact that they're doing a dissection at this period of time is also interesting, as we'll, as we'll see in just a few moments. We turn the page, and we're just going to see some interesting halachic discussions or potential ramifications for this number of 248 and this number of 252. The Yerushalmi and Sota on the top of the page, Gemara Yerushalmi, Hamorim, the waters that are used to test a woman who's suspected of adultery, in the classic case of Sota and Parshas Naso in the Torah. Amri Rabbi Tanchuma, Minyan Hamorim, the numerical value, the gematria, of Hama Orim, 
כנגד מסיים וארבעים ושמונה איברים שיש בו, וכנגד מסיים וארבעים ושמונה איברים שיש בו. So המאוררים, in numerical value, equals 248 times 2. So why is it 248 times 2? So, so the Yerushalmi says, it's a numerical allusion to the fact that there are two guilty parties here. It's not just the woman who commits adultery, it's the man with whom she committed adultery. So just, just like she is guilty, he is guilty. And how is that, how is that hinted at, at the word Hamorim, the Maim Hamorim? Because Hamorim contains the numerical value of 248, which is the limbs of the human body, times 2. Um, so he says, Vatanina and Kishem Shamayim Bodkim just like the water tests her as, a, uh, as an adulterer, um, adulteress, rather. Kachamayim Bodkim it also checks the, the male adulterer. So the, the Sefer Devash Lafi, written by the, the Chaim Yosef David Azulai, in the, actually, if you look, it's right next to the Aleph, the, there's the section titled Avarim, but I'm skipping to the next paragraph, which is titled Sota. There's the letter Aleph followed by the word Sota. So he asks a question, based on what we just learned in the, in the Gemara in Bechoros, about the dissection of the students of Rabbi Shmuel. Kosa Rabbeinu, he mentions the name of the Balaturim. Balaturim also deals extensively with Gematria. Hamaorim de Gematria based pa Amim Ramach. The Vimaorim in Gematria is two times two hundred forty-eight. Lomar Shabotim Ramach shall ish, shall isha. Vyesh Lahavin. So we have a question. The shall isha reish nun days. A woman has two hundred fifty-two, not two hundred forty-eight. We just learned that in the in the, uh, in the Gemara in Bechoros. The Efshar and Mishum Damrinim be Bechoros. Daf Memhei the Evorim Hayeserim be Isha Einim Etamim be Ohel. So therefore, she really has 248. So what we, did, what we didn't learn in the, in the Gemara in Bechoros said, so granted there is a discrepancy between the 248 limbs mentioned in the Mishnah and Oholos and the 252 mentioned in the, in the, uh, in the Gemara. So, but the Gemara does say that perhaps only the, the 248 limbs that the, both the man and the woman share in common, those are the only ones that generate tuma, that generate impurity. So maybe that's what the Gemara Yerushalmi was referring to, the 248 limbs of the man and the 248 limbs of the woman, even though indeed the, uh, the woman has uh, 252 limbs, only 248 of them are the ones that generate tumor. And there's another uh, curious uh, gematria, this one incorporating the 252, and that is the, the section above, beginning with Evarim, also in the, uh, in the work of the Sida, Sefer Devash Lafi. Evarim Ramach Beish Veresh Nun Beis Beisha 248 in a man and 252 in a woman Zeu Muskomi Kamegadolim This is the agreed upon number Kemoshi Tireb Eperek Cheste Olos And he says, very curious Gematria Veresh Mem Ches Veresh Nun Beis Heim Tuf Kuf Which is 500 The numerical value of 248 and 252 is 500 Vechein Pru Urvu In Gematria be fruitful and multiply is also numerically 500, which is an allusion to the fact that to fulfill the obligation of Purofu, be fruitful and multiply, you have to have both a male child of 248 limbs and a female child of 252 limbs combined together equals a total of, of, uh, of 500. By the way, this discrepancy between the 240 and 252 explains a common practice in many shoals throughout the country, throughout the world actually, in the prayer that they say for healing of the sick, the Mishaberach for the Cholim. The Mishaberach for the Cholim, yes? 
Okay, excellent question. Where does this number 248 come from? It's hard to say. It's obviously something which they, which they use for halachic purposes. Perhaps it's something that comes from Masorah. There is a discussion about whether, if you, if you study the Mone HaMitzvos, those who enumerate the mitzvos in the Torah, the mitzvos are divided into positive commandments and negative commandments. And what is the number of positive commandments? 248. And what is the number of negative commandments? 365. And traditionally, we believe that there were Ramach Evarim, 248 limbs, and 365 um, Gidim, you know, sinews, veins, arteries, 365 like the days, like the days of, the, of the lunar calendar. So it's, there is a debate about which came first. So actually, some say that the Mishnah is, is uh, 248 based on the number of mitzvahs, but historically, those who enumerated the mitzvahs came at, at a later historical time. So the, the assumption is that those who enumerated the mitzvahs we're, we're also paralleling the 248, and part of it is this philosophical notion that there is one limb for every positive commandment. So in a certain sense, every limb of your body has the ability to do a positive mitzvah. So that's the 248, the Ramach Eberim and the Ramach uh, Mitzvah uh, Saseh. Right, and combined, 248 and 365 is 613, yes. Sure, sure, excellent question. The question is, is there any notion or is there any discussion about whether their enumeration of the bones is based on bones fused or bones that are separated in different ways? And the answer is absolutely yes, and we're going to discuss that in just, in just a moment, what the, uh, what, how people viewed that. So just to return to the Mishaberach L'cholim, we say Mishaberach L'cholim, and some communities have the custom to say a separate Mishaberach, a separate prayer for the men. So sometimes they'll call up all those who have someone, a man who's sick, everybody come up to the bima. And then if you have a woman who's sick, you come into the bima, and a separate mishabeach for the women. There's only one sentence that's different in that entire mishabeach for the man and the women. What's the sentence? If, if you look at the mishabeach for the man, it says, the mishabeach, uh, you should have a fuhr shleim, etc., etc., liramach evarav, to his 248 limbs. For the woman, it says, she should have a mishabeach lechol evareha, to all her limbs. It does not say 248. And that distinction, and the reason why we make a Mishabeach for a man separate from Mishabeach for a woman, is, is based on this Gemara in Bechoros. Why does it say all instead of the Well, part of the reason is 248 has numerical significance. To say that 252 doesn't have specific numerical significance. And also, there's a, there's a, a subsequent debate in the Gemara whether they got 252 or 253. So there's no, there's no exact, exact number about that. Ah, that's another, uh, that's another discussion, yeah. No, they, so the question is, did they dissect a man? So we don't have any account of them dissecting a man. Perhaps they did. <coughs> but other ramifications of this 248, if you look at the Pardis Yosef, um, which is in the, the middle right, the, um, it is very fascinating on the, on the phrase, midvar sheker tirchak, one should distance oneself from, uh, from, uh, from lying. Um, and I actually heard uh, so that you know someone asked they asked someone to write a, a recommendation from them. Said I'll need a very very long pen to write your recommendation <laughs> because of midbar sheker tirchak. Um, so here he says a rabba gon of Moshe Kanal uh, the av basin of kilutzin uh, kulitzin. Kosavli, so this is an interesting question about the application, interesting how it finds its expression in Midvar Shekhar Tircha. Shinistapik, he was, he was wondering, if someone lost a limb, he had a limb amputated, 
Can he still say in his prayers my 248 limbs? Because he doesn't have 248 anymore. He's deficient 248. Because you're not supposed to lie. So he says actually that, uh, that yes, indeed, because it doesn't mean him specifically, it means generally or first everybody. Uh, but there were, there were discussions, by the way, in the, in the history of embryology, uh, there were, in, in how they understood how genes, genes is uh, anachronistic to talk about genes, which we'll talk about in, in our next lecture, but they, they, how they understood um, how traits were perpetuated from generation to generation. There was one theory that the male reproductive seed derived from every part of the, the body, and there's a corresponding part in the, in the subsequent fetus. So there were debates about if a man who had an amputated limb or was born without a limb, he wouldn't have reproductive seed from that limb. So there was concern whether he would be able to give birth to a child that had that limb. Right, the inheritance of acquired characteristics is similar to this, uh, this, uh, similar concepts, all similar ideas. And another. So, what, so what's the verdict? When a limb is missing, you still say. You can still say Ramach Evarim, sure. It's not, it's not the. Even if you have, let's say, you have phantom pain. Right. <laughs> She's talking about phantom pain. Is that there's a, there's a medical notion that when people have limbs removed, they still have a sensation of the existence of the limb, and and actually feel that it exists even though it doesn't exist. So maybe phys, maybe maybe that's a theological comment. Maybe we all have a, a a notion of the existence of all our limbs, even though we don't have them. We still have them. Right. There's there's extensive discussion about the phantom limb phenomenon. So if you look on the left middle side, the Minchat uh, Elazer, it should be Minchas Elazer, <laughs> the Moon Kacharov. And um, he actually wrote also an, an interesting halachic discussion about this, uh, the, this uh, 248 distinction. <laughs> now, the Shema that we say um, ends with Hashem Elokechem Emes. And then the Chazan repeats those three words. And when you say Shema alone, in the absence of a minion, you say three words at the beginning of the Shema, why do you add those three words? So one of the reasons you add those three words is so that the, entire, the total of, of words of the Shema will equal 248, which corresponds to the limbs of the human body. So he was asked, the Moon Kacharov was asked, should a woman say, she has more if she has more? Maybe she should add words. Maybe she shouldn't say the Kelmelf Nehman. So this is just a curious uh, halachic ramification of this, of this 248 versus non-248. He actually concludes that indeed she should say it. It's the same thing, this notion of the, of the whole call, of the whole community, uh, not necessarily specific versus non-specific, and also this notion that 248 limbs of the woman's body are the ones that generate tuma. So there is, there is a 248 for the woman, just like 248 for the man. So this is all well and good. And we understand that it's 248 for the man based on our Masora and 252 for the woman. But what happens if you look at the human body? Are there indeed 248? And how would an anatomist in the 21st century take the Mishnah and Olos and actually figure out the number 248? And the answer is it's a very, very complex question and there's no real clear answer to it. And one of the attempts to do this to try and find a modern anatomical understanding of all these 248 limbs was in the very center of your page, written by Rabbi Hudeleid Katznelson, who was a Russian physician. For those of you trained in medicine or familiar with the name uh, Virchow, or Virchow, 
uh, Virchow's node is one of the, the nodes in the neck, which we uh, known by that uh, the pseudonym of Virchow, a, a very famous pathologist in Russia in the uh, in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. The man who wrote this work, Abutilid Katznelson, was a star pupil of Rudolf uh, Virchow, and he was a brilliant scientist and he was a brilliant uh, Talmudist, a brilliant scholar, and he wrote an entire book called Ramach Evarim, which I have a copy of at home. And actually, this is, a co this is a copy of my copy. And I happened to purchase it from, some, from a bookseller. And sometimes you get lucky like this. On the front page, and it's, it's in, his hand, in the handwriting on top, it says, Matanat zikaron me'etamachaber. So this was a copy that was signed by the author. It was given to somebody. It doesn't say who it was given to, but it was, it was signed by the author. So, and you won't be able to see this, if those of you who have, can read micrography or have microscopic vision, um, the date of publication of this book is Tuf Reish Mem Ches, Ramach. So you see he saved, he saved the date of publication for the, the year, which would be, be exactly, uh, you know, 5,000, uh, uh, I don't know exact, uh, the 248 with 547. Um, so he, he embarks on this very detailed analysis of trying to figure out all these limbs in the body, what does each one correlate, and exactly like, uh, like someone suggested, uh, he said that the body that was dissected in the Gemara Bacharos was a young woman, must have been a teenage girl, and he, he says based on the, physiolo or the, the physiology of bone development that certain bones fuse at different stages of, uh, of development. So for example, in a young child, a bone may have, the, center, the bone fuses from, from the middle outside. So you have the two ends which are comprised of bone, the middle which is comprised of bone, and the other parts are cartilage. They're not full bone. So he says they, they dissected or they boiled the body, and when you boil the body, those bones, which would normally be one in a living adult, would actually be three in an adolescent girl. So based on that as a premise, <coughs> he comes to this conclusion of, of exactly this number of, uh, of 248. But it's still very, and, and if you look in the, in the Kahati, oh, sure they would. They would this is a, it's a different time. They, would, they killed people at all ages in those days. They were non-discriminatory, right? No, because she, she's saying this, this person was sentenced to death. So I think they wouldn't have sentenced the teenager to death. Yes, they would have sentenced the teenager to death. I don't know. I don't know the ages of the... Uh, but, but they were right, separate. they were separate. So the, uh, the fusing of all the bones, and some people use this to, to describe this. So that, for example, the skull mm -hmm. is comprised of many bones that are fused. The pelvis is comprised of many bones that are fused. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you, if you break down all those different numbers, you might indeed uh, come up to 248. But many, many people over the centuries have attempted to, uh, to align the mission of Allah to contemporary anatomical understanding, and they have not been successfully able to do so. So if you look at the, the, uh, the if you continue the... Um, Handout also a little earlier than uh, than uh, Yudelite Kath Nelson, um, the Mate Dan Kuzari Shaini from David Nieto also struggled with this con with this concern about the discrepancy between what was then modern anatomy understanding and the number 248. And he says, There is a discrepancy between what Chazal enumerate is 248 bones, and the menatrim, menateach, is a modern word still, nituach uh, is surgery. So menatrim here doesn't mean the surgeons, it means more, more accurately translated the anatomists. The same, the mispar and also the number of the bones. 
Don't be concerned about this discrepancy. Um, that each one was concerned with their own issues and they're not necessarily talking apples and apples. They're talking apples and oranges. So the anatomists are interested in the description of the bone purely for anatomical sake and the halachists are interested purely for halachic sake. And the definition of an aver, you notice I use the term aver in, or limb and not bone. The definition of aver is, is not bone. Aver doesn't mean bone. Aver means halachic limb, which includes a certain amount of... Uh, it's basar gidim v'atzamos. It includes a certain amount of flesh, a certain amount of veins and arteries, a certain amount of bone. So how they described it, however they described it, was, was for halachic purposes. And they must have seen what they described and described it accordingly. So when they enumerated this 252, it's not like they were fantasizing. They were looking at a body and enumerating 252. Now what those 252 limbs were exactly, we don't necessarily know. But, uh, but it's clear that, what, that whatever they did, they, they understood. And the same, same thing is finds expression throughout history. And there was a sefer that came out in the bottom right hand, Sefer Mishnas Olam Katan in the late 1800s, Maseches Nituach, a physician by, uh, by the name of Dr. Benjamin Sharshevsky, wrote a book called Olam Katan for, for Jews. Now keep in mind, this is a scientist writing in Hebrew language, a book about anatomy. Now who is he writing this for? You know, physicians weren't, Hebrew wasn't the, the lingua franca of medicine you know, so who's he, he's writing this for Jews that are interested in this, in the understanding of, an, of anatomy so in the introduction and in the book review of this book which appeared in the journal Hamasef which is excerpted in the, in the bottom uh, of your handout and this was a very uh, widely disseminated popular journal at that time intellectual journal Harav Pines, back Domasol, Sefer, Omer Lamachaber. Harav Pines wrote, a, wrote an introduction to this Sefer, which was to be disseminated to the Jewish population, and it was a book discussing anatomy. And he says, Lo nichichad mimeni, ki b'minyan ha'atzamos sheba adam, mishnas chas aseres l'mishnas chazal ve'olos. He goes, it has not eluded me that the number of, of bones or limbs that you describe in your book that you're writing for the Jewish population does not jive with the Mishnah Olos, which has 248. Um, and you say there's 211 <coughs> and I tried very hard to, to, uh, to drive the two numbers that there should not be a discrepancy between the rabbis and what is understood in modern science it's not a question of philosophical debate it's a question of reality they're both looking at the same body. How could there be a discrepancy between what they see with their eyes and what Chazal see with their eyes? Um, and he says he, he still hasn't, to his own satisfaction, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't found a, a complete answer. But it's very similar to the Mate Dan in, in, as, as his predecessor. says whatever they saw, they obviously based it on what they saw with their own eyes. They weren't concerned about anatomical description like the scientists were. And just to skip to the next uh, column and the, the paragraph in the next column so he said the, the reviewer of this book in the late 1800s said the, the advantage or the, the benefit of these kinds of books that are being published now in the late 1800s have tremendous benefit and what is their benefit um, well, and I'll skip you don't have to follow along I'll just read it it's in the, the third end of the third line in a sefer kazeh hamunach lefoneinu, this book, yuchal habi toeles lerabbanon ata lulmodes chachmas anituach al borio. 
So he said, we need to have books that tell us scientific facts and scientific information. And the rabbi shouldn't say, you know, I don't know. I mean, if there's an anatomical question, they have to know. He said, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know anatomy. So now they have Hebrew books that are being written to show them anatomy so that the rabbis shouldn't say, I don't know the anatomy. I, I don't know it. I have to be machmir. I have to take a strict position because I simply don't have access to the information. So, so the value of these kinds of works is to prevent the rabbis from taking those kinds of stances. To say, I do have the information now, so now I'm able to paskin appropriately, to paskin accurately, and that's simply because the absence of information to be machmir, to say something more strict. We now turn the page to page six. In the Chuv of the Nod of Yehuda, Landau, from the 18th century. Rebichezka Landau lived in Prague, very prominent rub at that time, received questions from all over the world. And the following question was posed to him. This Chuva still remains a seminal Chuva in the history of halachic literature applied extensively to this very day uh, in many areas of halacha. And I'm, I'm skipping to the second line, the middle of the second line. Regarding the question which was posed to me, Rabbi Chesca Landau, which came from the city of London, and what was the case? Thank you so much. Thank you. Someone, someone who fell ill with the uh, with a condition called Choli of Evan Bekisa. Does anyone want to hazard a guess what Evan Bekisa might be? Gallstones. Any other guesses? Kidney stones? We'll see, we'll see what it had to have been based on the historical context. And what happened? Um, and the rabbi and the doctors um, did surgery, like, like it was their practice for this kind of medical condition. The law also low trufa, and it was unsuccessful surgery, and the patient died. Lo and behold. And the, the uh, rabbis in London were asked by the physicians in London after the unsuccessful surgery and the patient died. They said, can we now do a dissection on this body? So we can find the cause of death. We want to do an autopsy to find the cause of death. So physicians can learn from this case that if a subsequent case is presented to these doctors, they will have an idea of how to treat it better. There you have it. This tshuva in the late 1700s is the very first tshuva in the history of halachic literature that talks about anatomical dissection and autopsy. And as we said, remains today one of the most important tshuvas in this, uh, in this field. Now, before we get into the halachic response, and the truth is, halachic response, you'll probably learn a lot more in the, in the organ donation lecture in subsequent days. I want to focus on a little bit of the historical aspect. Why is it that this is the first tshuva in the history of halachic literature talking about dissection? What happened to the Talmud talking about dissection? Now, we have this one case that we learned about. But there's no psaq halacha about anatomical dissection. What about the Rambam? People mention the Rambam. The Rambam, who himself was a Talmudist and a physician, doesn't make a single mention of the problem of dissecting a human body. 
What about the Shulchan Aruch? The Shulchan Aruch was written in the 1500s, the Code of Law, major Code of Law, which we, st we st still refer to extensively today, talks about every aspect from birth to death and after death and exhumation of the body and, uh, and mourning practices. Not a single discussion about anatomical dissection or performing an autopsy on a human body. We have, we have to wait for the Node to be Huda in the 1700s. Yes? So the question is, does it have to do with the development of surgery and anesthesia? Partially. Partially. And anesthesia, although we're not going to talk extensively about anesthesia, anesthesia was first, first developed in the mid-1800s. Um, the very first use of anesthesia was, the successful use was actually at Harvard for a dental extraction. And it's a very famous case. This person went in for a de dental extraction. Um, he got, I believe it was uh, chloroform at that time, was the first, first uh, type of anesthesia. And, uh, and he woke up after the procedure, and, uh, and his first line was, when are we going to start? And when he said that first line, the entire crowd erupted into cheers, and there was this huge, uh, huge event uh, in the first uh, successful use of anesthesia. Now, there are interesting uses of anesthesia. The, the halachic discussions of anesthesia relate to anesthesia for use of circ in circumcision. Are you allowed to use anesthesia for circumcision? Are you? There's debate. There's debate. And interestingly, when they first described anesthesia, they started to use anesthesia. One of the first areas they used it was in childbirth. And there were, there were theological discussions about whether you can use anesthesia for childbirth because the Torah says, You're supposed to have pain, birth pains when you give birth. So who gives you the right to use anesthesia to circumvent the biblical imperative of... of uh, <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> Actually, you should, you should rest assured, by the way, it's discussed more in the Christian sources than in the halachic sources. The halachic sources were not concerned about the use of anesthesia, as concerned. Discuss it, but, but, uh, but peripherally. But, but in answer to the question, it is partially related to that. So in order for us to understand why it is only in the 1700s, we have to have at least a basic understanding of the history of anatomical dissection. Now, if you go back to antiquity, back to actually Alexandria, where the Radbaz hailed from in the 1500s, but if you go back to the second century before the Common Era in Alexandria, there's a very famous school of anatomical dissection run by a man named Hieronymus. According to historical accounts, that, that school was in existence for about 100 years, 150 years, and people came from all over that region to train in anatomy. <coughs> and after it closed down, for reasons which are historically debated and remain somewhat unclear, there was no systematic anatomical dissection of the human body as part of medical training until the Renaissance. So we are talking 16, 1700 years where there was no systematic anatomical dissection. And we have the famous Galen, who was a contemporary of Yehuda Hanasi, as we mentioned in the second century of the Common Era, who wrote extensive works on medicine and anatomy, and whose works served as the Bible of all medical training until the Renaissance. So we're talking for 1,300 years. If you studied medicine, you have to study Galen. He himself did not do systematic anatomical dissection. Now, he was a physician for the gladiators, so he learned a little cross-sectional anatomy. But he didn't, uh, he didn't perform a, a systematic dissection. There's some debate that maybe he went to Alexandria, this place of the original school of dissection, and maybe saw a complete skeleton at that time. But they did the occasional dissection on someone who'd washed up from the shore or someone who was sentenced to death, but not systematic dissection. 
That is why, by the way, you had these anatomical notions that crept up like the seven-chambered uterus in the Middle Ages. They weren't doing systematic dissection. It wasn't a notion that was easily dispelled because people weren't doing the dissection. So the, the only history which may differ from the Western culture's history is, is China. It's debated exa exactly how, how much anatomy was part of the training of China, but there was no, there was no connection between the Western world and China for, sure, for a very long period of time, yes. So why wasn't there? Why wasn't there? What happened? So one of the most common explanations is that it's, it's related to the uh, pervasiveness of the doctrine of the Catholic Church and that perhaps the church imposed this ban where there's some theological bans. The only problem with that is that the church, you know, as it's known, and even in, and I don't profess to be a historian of, of the history of the Catholic Church, but that could not have been prevalent at least until the third, fourth century of the Common Era, so you still have a few hundred years you have to account for. So even in the Arab world, there was, there was concern about the, the sacredness of the human body. Uh, perhaps the, the notion of the sanctity of the body from Jewish culture also pervaded the world. It's hard, it's hard to explain, and no one has a clear, clear and definitive answer. It could perhaps, it could perhaps be the, anti, the early anti-vivisectionist uh, movement is what, uh, is what caused it, but it is, I, I couldn't say yes, I couldn't say no. I'm sure that's, that's one of the factors which, which uh, could have perhaps factored in. And not a lot to say, even in a thigh, right? So the person who was credited with this resurrection, if you will, of anatomical dissection, the most famously credited, obviously it's, it, was a, it wasn't him alone, it was many, many people involved over a few hundred years, but sort of the crowning glory of this return to anatomical dissection was, was a man named Andreas Vesalius. Andreas Vesalius, um, who practiced anatomy in the, in the University of Padua in, in northern Italy uh, in the 1500s. Vesalius? V-E-S-A-L-I-U-S, this Vesalius. Um, practiced in the University of Padua. Um, uh, and Padua, by the way, was, uh, was one of the only universities in the Middle Ages in the Renaissance which, uh, which accepted Jews for training. Uh, and many Jews attended the University of Padua. And there's actually, I have a, at home a registry of all the Jews who attended the medical school of the University of Padua from about 1400 to about 1700. Um, there's a few hundred, and it's, it's a veritable who's who of, of Renaissance jury. Um, some remarkable figures attended the University of Padua. And the reason why University of Padua Jews trained as opposed to other places um, is because uh, even though, ironically, it was just a stone's throw away from the, uh, from the Vatican, it was one of the only universities in that period of time where to graduate and receive your degree, you did not have to avow your, uh, your beliefs to Christianity. So in, in virtually every other university, if to get your degree, you had to make a statement that you believe in, in Christianity and all the beliefs associated with Christianity. Many times the graduations occurred in churches, um, and it was, uh, it was something that, that pretty much precluded any, any Orthodox Jew from attending or at least receiving a degree in any of those universities. That's why they flocked to the University of Padua in droves uh, from literally all over the world from Eastern Europe, Western Europe, all attended the University of Padua if you wanted to attend the university. And there were yeshivas there um, where people used to study in the morning and go to school in the afternoon. Uh, it was like the early yeshiva university uh, uh, paradigm is actually probably dates back, uh, dates back to the Renaissance. Um, but don't think that the Jews were not discriminated against. The Jews were discriminated against. They had to pay higher fees of admission. Um, and, and apropos our, our weather today, the very first snow of the season 
it was tradition for the Jews to provide sweet meats to everybody in the university, which was a fee of an extraordinary amount of money. Uh, and there are interesting stories about how Orthodox Jews attended those universities and taking exams on Shabbos and all those kinds of things. Uh, very fascinating. So the person in that university who was performing those anatomical lectures was none other than Andreas Vesalius, and you have in your handout the front page of that classic work, um, The Fabric of the Human Body, which was written... It was pub published in 1543, uh, I think, was the first publication in, in Brussels. The picture, you can't see it so well. The original work is a very large book. It's not a small book. Uh, and you see Vesalius in the center dissecting a human body, and you see uh, throngs of people uh, observing the dissection. Uh, and interestingly, it was, it was uh, a real event in those days when people did dissections. Dissections were not done commonly. They were done, uh, they were done occasionally, and people became very fascinated in the, in the whole concept of rediscovering the human body. So your average people, this wasn't only scientists, the average, human, the average person on the street would attend these dissections um, for uh, entertainment and for information. Uh, and, and the place wherein the dissections occurred was called the anatomical theater, uh, and it really was a theatrical event, and there were these uh, these big uh, uh, bleachers, you know, usually in big circle, and people used to watch. Uh, and to this very day, if you go to England, that uh, that uh, terminology is perpetuated. Um, I, I remember I did an elective in London, and I thought, you know, uh, and I was listening in the hallway, and said, you know, it's uh, one o'clock. He said, we have to we have to go to the theater. I said, this is a great place to train. I want to, uh, I want to come here. So they're going to the, the theater. The operating room is still called the theater, the anatomical theater. Yes. So the University of Pennsylvania, they, they have uh, old operating rooms. And uh, the, the United States it doesn't have very much old in the history of medicine. They still have probably some early operating rooms. But if you go to England, for example, um, and if you go to the University of Padua, where Vesalius did his dissections, they, they have the I mean, it's been reconstructed, but they have the original place of the anatomical theater, which was used as an anatomical theater for many centuries. For, uh, 1543 was the first, first year of publication. And parenthetically, the, the people who used to attend these dissections was not only the average Joe, but it was also uh, um, artists. And the greatest artists of the Renaissance were in these galleries watching those like Vesalius and those who followed him performing anatomical dissections. And this, this is very clearly reflected in the, in the art of the Renaissance. Right, da Vinci was involved in dissection. He was a little earlier. He was, in, he was a couple centuries earlier. He was in the 1400s, da Vinci. Yes? Um, we started with um, W. Da and there's no answer. Right, I'll tell you the answer. It's a lengthy tube. I didn't include the answer in, the, in this handout. <coughs> so Vesalius, you see... Was a uh, was this crowning glory, and um, so so the, if you go to, to Renaissance Italy today and you look at the sculpture of uh, of Renaissance Italy, you'll see that there's extraordinary attention to anatomical detail. You will see every vein and every fiber, every muscle delineated in these statues, and that's because of a renewed interest in every aspect of the human body. And this is all simultaneous with the anatomy and with the art of the Renaissance and the rediscovery of the human body. Um, and curiously, in this work of Vesalius, which is considered amongst the greatest works in the history of medicine, the, he translates his terms into a number of different languages. He translates his terms into Greek, into Latin, and into Hebrew. The Hebrew language appears in the works of Vesalius. 
And, and why that is, is a very lengthy discussion, but suffice it to say, it shows that the Jews did play a role in transmission of medical material for, uh, for many centuries. And the Jews were considered to be the bearers of, uh, of tradition. And the Jew who apparently taught Vesalius this Hebrew is pictured in this, uh, in this uh, front page. It's hard to see, but uh, I think I tried to put a circle around it, but it's very small. It's, uh, he's wearing like a fez and a white beard un- underneath the, uh, underneath the, uh, the big, the big uh, sign that says Andreas Vesalius to the right underneath it. Um, so be that as it may, the, the uh, dissection was not really reinstituted into the, the training of medicine until the 1500s. Uh, and that is why the uh, Rambam doesn't have any discussion of anatomical dissection. That is why the Shulchan Aruch, which roughly the time of Vesalius, had absolutely no mention of, of anatomical dissection because it wasn't being done. It was only introduced into medical training in the 1500s and the 1600s. Um, so that's what, that explains why the Noda Behuda was, uh, was doing what he was doing. And uh, I mean, why the Noda Behuda is the only one or the very first one in the history of halakhic literature that discusses the issue of anatomical dissection. And to give you an idea of how it found, found its expression in medical training, we have the tshuva below the Noda Behuda, which was written by a medical student from the University of Göttingen in Germany to none other than Rabbi Yaakov Emden who was a contemporary of, of uh, Rehezkel Landau, the Noda Behuda. And the question was, and I'll just skip to the, uh, after the, the three dots, where the line begins, V'natisi o'ali eitzel mishkenos haroim, v'lishmo ashrikos o'adarim ha'magim v'malefes higayon. It's beautiful poetic Hebrew. This is written by a medical student who is obviously a very literate man. Uh, and just to read it and to translate it is a complex thing. And this is just a question to, uh, to the Noda Behuda. I'm sorry, to the to Yaakov Emden. And if you skip to the, the, the few dots in the middle of that paragraph, you know, he, he goes into a discussion about how he found himself in the practice of medicine. He was apologizing for ending up in the field of medicine. He said, but now I have a halachic problem that I have to present to you. Someone who wants to learn the practice of medicine has to practice anatomy, has to practice anatomical dissection. And sometimes they do dog lab on Shabbos and they kill the dogs if they don't have a body for dissection. I'm sorry. Um, they have special dissecting instruments, etc. So he asked him a, a, a lengthy question about whether it's permitted for, permitted for him to do anatomical dissection or not permitted for him to do anatomical dissection. Um, and he, he again has various, about five or six, seven page tshuva, uh, which was written to him by a man named Benjamin Wolf Ginsburg, who was a medical student at that time, whom we actually happen to know from other sources. Um, in the, as was practiced in the uh, Middle Ages and Renaissance and to this very day to some extent, although not, with not as much seriousness, it was required for all students of medicine to write a, a doctoral dissertation in addition to their usual training. And the doctoral dissertations that people wrote were extraordinary works, some of them novel works in the history of medicine. This, man, his, this man's uh, doctoral dissertation due to... Uh, graduate his uh, University of, uh, of Göttingen in Germany was written 
uh, on the topic of medicine from the Talmud, biblical and Talmudic medicine. And you actually, to the right of the tshuva, you have a translation of the title page of that work, which we have, uh, which he wrote for full honors in medicine uh, in the year 1743 by the author Benjamin Wolf Ginsburg, a Jew native of Poland. We said people traveled uh, far and wide to learn medicine. Um, and we have that, that entire dissertation we have uh, in, in the original and in the English translation. So what was it then? What was his psaac and what was the case? And we, we talked about what is this holy ho evan bekiso. And what we'll do is we'll finish this page and then we'll take another break for, uh, for stretching. What was this holy ho evan bekiso? Some said gallstones, some said kidney stones. Now, <coughs> because they weren't doing dissection for a long period of time, they actually weren't even aware of the existence of a gallstone. The first described gallstone in the history of medicine is in 1458. Nobody described it before. They didn't operate on gallstones until the mid-19th century. The understanding of medicine and the correlation of anatomical disease to, to, uh, to presentation of disease and the ability to remove organs, that wasn't even understood until, uh, until, until that period of time. But there was something that was operated on for thousands of years. There was one stone, one evan, which was known about from the times of antiquity. And that's a stone, who said that? Stone in the bladder. Stone in the urinary bladder. And it was known, it's even been described by Celsus in the first century of the Common Era. He has a, a six-page description of how to cut for the stone. Now, how did they know about it? They didn't know very much about anatomy. How did they know about the stone in the bladder? They knew when they had one. And for those of you who've had a kidney stone, and uh, they say that the kidney stone is the man's uh, analog to childbirth, uh, a kidney stone is extraordinarily painful. A kidney stone is measured in millimeters. A bladder stone is measured in inches. Bladder stones were extremely prevalent throughout history, and they knew that there was a bladder stone because they could feel it because it was so large, and some of them actually came out the body, and they also knew because people had continued, constant, excruciating agony all the time from the bladder stone. Because it was a course, it was a course of because it continued infection. Sometimes it would obstruct the the uh, path of the urine, and it was a constant source of a continued infection. So they, they so people were suffering so much they they got people to cut it out. So even in the times of antiquity, they were able to do that type of surgery. That's one of the only surgeries that was performed prior to anesthesia, was uh, was the cutting of the stone, and they were able to remove it from the area between the rectum and between the uh, the reproductive area called the perineum. They could make a small incision and try and remove out the stones. And if you go to England, the Royal College of Surgeons, they still have stones from 1500s and 1600s. They're, I mean, they're huge, huge things. Um, and these are the kinds of stones that they used to cut out. So it is. So the question is, what happened to urinary stone, urinary bladder stones? So if you look at the graph of the prevalence of urinary bladder stones from 1900 to 2000, it is a straight line down. It was a precipitous decline. To give you an idea of the prevalence of stones in, in previous times, I mean, almost everybody had stones. I mean, 40% of the population had stones in the bladder. I mean, it was one of the most commonly performed surgeries in the history of medicine. So why don't we have them today? We don't have them today probably because of nutritional uh, changes and the, the mechanization of foods, the processing of foods. Nobody really knows why, but it must be dietary. It's got to be dietary. But now, I mean, it's become so obsolete that, you know, I practice emergency medicine. I mean, bladder stone isn't even on my differential diagnosis. You know, if 200 years ago, bladder stone was my number one diagnosis if someone came in with abdominal pain. Today, it's not even on the list. 
But in, then it was tremendously, tremendously popular and something which people suffer from uh, a lot. Well, Oh, so hygiene. Hygiene may have been an issue too. And hygiene around the area, if you're not doing hygiene, it can, the bacteria can go out the bladder and can, and can cause stones that way also. Um, and this was one, to give you an idea also of how, how, uh, how prevalent stones were and who was operating on stones. Um, you're all familiar with the song Frere Jacques. So Father Jacques uh, uh, became... Uh, became brother. Yeah, brother, I'm sorry, Brother Jacques. Um, had a religious epiphany and became a, uh, a religious leader, a priest. But before that, his vocation was a wandering lithotomist. A lithotomist is somebody who cuts for the stone. Now, why was he wandering? He was wandering because his mortality rate was 50%. So 50% of the people that he operated on died. Died. Now they, they probably wouldn't have died, and they wouldn't have died right away. They would have died for a long time. So he, he, um, and that on the bottom, this is a, and it, it didn't come out so well, but on the bottom is a picture of Frere Jacques doing a, uh, a cutting for the stone. And right above that, they were experimenting in England in the mid-1700s with new operations to cut for the stone. And you have here from Philosophical Transactions from 1746, this is a copy of the actual article, a remarkable case of a person cut for the stone in the new way, by William Cheselden, who was a surgeon at that time. So you, it's clear that the no de Behuda who got this question from London in the mid to late 1700s was from a place where people were experimenting. The person died, and they said, you know, we're doing a new procedure. We want to know if this procedure works. We've got to do an autopsy so we know what to do. Um, and the Moruk which was co coincidentally written by Yaakov Emden, <coughs> also discusses this issue. When he says, <coughs> and this source, by the way, is a modern source to this very day for how much risk you can take for surgical procedures. In halacha, you, I mean, if you want to undergo a procedure and it's an elective procedure, how much risk can you, do, can you, can you incur to undergo an elective procedure? So this is one of the sources. And, and, and in that source, he says, Some people <coughs> embark on this surgical procedure to save themselves from the extraordinary pain of bladder stones. Same exact uh, phrase from the No de Behuda. That submit to surgery for this bladder stone. The pain is extraordinary where, to the extent that people would rather die than have this pain. And an example of that is Napoleon III. Napoleon III in the Franco-Prussian War in the history of France, no emperor ever led his troops to war. Never. The troops always went before, the emperor stayed behind. Napoleon III led his troops into war, the first one into the battle. Why? According to historians, he suffered from bladder stones. His pain was so severe, he was praying that he would be killed by the enemy troops. Now, that's, that's, that's Napoleon Bonaparte. That's Napoleon I. This is Napoleon III. Right? So, so he actually was praying. I mean, much to his dismay, he didn't die uh, on the battlefield. He was taken into captivity. But how did he die? He died a year later when he underwent an operation to cut the stone. He died from the complications of the surgery. So it, you could see the pain was excruciating. So he says, even though some, the, the, you'll be relieved from the pain, 
Mikol Makom, Yesh Lachush Latzmam, I'm sorry, Noshim and Yopim, Mikol Makom, Ha'alulim, Yesh Lachem Lachush Latzmam. You have to be concerned that you might die from the procedure. And he actually said it's prohibited to undergo the procedure. I'm skipping a few lines ahead. He says, Harbi Many people underwent the procedure and were saved. Many people died as a result of the surgery. And this isn't modern surgery. This is pre-anesthesia surgery. This is pre-antibiotic surgery. This is surgery where a very high percentage of people died, and even the people that didn't die were left with, with a lot of uh, adverse consequences as a result of the surgery. So just to conclude this section, we'll take a brief break. The answer to Noz Behuda was, and I'll say to state this just briefly because this halachikisha will be discussed in the organ transplantation lecture, um, that no, they're not allowed to do the dissection, not allowed to do the autopsy. Why not? Because we just learned, as we did by Mumya, you're not allowed to desecrate the body, you're not allowed to derive benefit from the body, you have to bury the body. All these things are allowed to be violated for pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh. But how does he define pikuach nefesh? By a chola lefanenu, somebody who is directly and immediately going to benefit from the procedure. To do an autopsy and say, well, maybe someone will come in a, a week from now, a year from now. So that, that doesn't rise to the level sufficient enough to be able to, to supersede the prohibitions that, that relate to, uh, to Nibel Hamez. So we'll stop here, we'll take a break, and then we'll, uh, we'll come back for the last section. I'm sorry? Right, so if that would have been the case... If that would have been the case, that if we do this autopsy, this person in the operating room next to, next to her, this patient will benefit, then the note of Yehuda's response would have been, yes, you're allowed to do the dissection. That's how, that's how Zanisha actually says that exactly. That in times of epidemic, if there are people, even though there's not somebody in the next operating room, if there are generally people that suffer from that great disease, then, then you would be No, she, she translated actually. Yeah, yeah. She's a, she's a biochemist. Oh, okay. Is it all organic? Uh, she's trying to find out there. She said there might be a lot of biotic in there. Uh-huh. 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 I'll get it. She actually feel okay. It's just a voice. Are we going to break at 12.30? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I don't mind. I'm here anyway. I what time is the second session? Hey, continue. <laughs> Didn't your Moshe Poskin that if you, uh, if there's some kind of experimental medication or something which goes wrong, that you're allowed to do an autopsy? I don't new procedure. There's, there's, uh, if new if it's going to benefit, if it's going to benefit the, all the people that are now using that it has drug, to be has to be lefaneno. So the, the the application of lefaneno is is subject to debate. Um, that, that really, it's, it's a difficult question. And today, with you know, internet and uh, and TV and, and live simulcast, and uh, so you could argue that everything is lefaneno. And pathologists argue that they say, listen, we put up on the internet our findings, you know, that day, and the whole world has access. But it doesn't mean According and to this, this thing on the History Channel, by the way, was, was exceptional. I love these uh, things about the, the, the history of surgery. And uh, it said that when Galen came to Alexandria, although officially it was outlawed, they still allowed us to do it. And he did systematic dissection, especially on the gladiators who couldn't save, because he was the gladiator. Right, the gladiator. <laughs> so the ones who saved, fine, and the ones who didn't save. I'd love to get a hold of that. Uh, you could probably get it. Yeah, I know. 
Oh, yeah. Call, uh, it was on last week. Oh, great. Great. So I'll go on the website. They probably rebroadcast. They rebroadcast every uh, every. Yeah, it was on... It was on... I saw one they had like a few years ago in cardiothoracic surgery, the history of cardiothoracic surgery, which was amazing. We still had, and when we were in dental school, we still had a theater. We had an amphitheater with, with the, with the uh, Rosarella Carabiaga. Yeah. And, uh, it's still, it all goes back to that time. That's uh, the architectural design of those cir- circular, uh, circular theaters. Sure, sure. They didn't know what they were doing at that time. Absolutely, because if someone had abdominal, that's why they didn't do too many surgeries in those days, because the results would have been disastrous. So they, if they knew what they were doing, they would apparate. But if they didn't know what they were doing, I mean, they couldn't do an exploratory laparotomy in those days because the person would invariably die. So there's something that they knew that they could remove and, and close up easily. Poke around? Poked around, yeah. Another one of the things that they, that they used to operate on was ovarian uh, cancer. Biggest cancers, actually. And there was an interesting case just about a month ago. This is in 1700s, 1800s. Um, oh, in retrospect, you know, it was malignant things. It was gross. But they, they can... They can I think the largest mass is like 150 pounds or something, like some astronomical amount. You know, a woman who is generally... No, cancer has been discovered for centuries. I mean, they knew growths, you know, that they could see externally, growths in every part of the body, skin growth, facial growth. It's one of those. It's one of those things where, where people generally discourage it. But, but the Kalhanim that are really intent on going to medical school, there are ways to 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 get around it. The easiest and simplest thing which most people do is rely on the fact that the, that the bodies that are being dissected are not Jewish, uh-huh. and rely on the fact that the Jews don't generate too much ohel. So they can stand in the room, but they can't touch the body. So what they do is they stand that, that the non-Jewish body does not generate too much ohel. So if, it, if, if, if it's a Jewish body, then there's really nothing they can do. I mean, they're, they're, they're stuck. But if you assume, which you can, you rely on the fact that the majority of people that are donating bodies are not Jewish. Now, what about the whole thing about deriving benefit, like educational or research or whatever, you know, like the whole ethics of deriving benefit from stuff that you don't believe is right. Now, obviously, it's not right for you, but right, it's okay right. for them. So that's the <coughs> Also, once research has been done, yeah. there's no prohibition against deriving benefits. But there is prohibition, let's say, from like, David Schatz just spoke on this, on like in school, mm-hmm. like can you derive uh, research, let's say, you know, the Nazi uh, freezing Right, 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 correct, correct. There, 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 there would not, would not. So would not. research derived from anything, you can... Uh, correct, once it's already been done. You, we wouldn't sanction it prospectively, right, obviously, right, right. But, but, it, but once it's been done, you can derive benefits. You were telling me before about two months, I can never really get around Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to chancel. So, like, the whole thing with revolving doors or whatever, it's sort of like is it a legal fiction? Is it a fiction? <coughs> right. I mean, there is a sort of quotient, a finite, you know, part, whatever. I mean, illusion. Right. There, right. There, there are a whole host of complex laws when Tuma is uh, superseded, when it, when it applies, you know, the, 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 the space within, it, within which it, has, it finds it, itself. If there are doors, uh, for example, is. Uh, um, if if you could have a number of, of openings within a room, but if the body is likely to go out one opening, so then the other openings are precluded from tumor because the tumor is likely to go out that opening. It's a lot of esoteric laws that are very unique. This would rank very high, very high. 
It's hard to ignore. It, it, yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's abstract. It's abstract. <laughs> We've all absorbed it. Very good. No, no, this is not the 12.30 break. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't mind going after 12.30. I mean, if people want to hang around, they're going to go, that's fine. I can keep no, going but then we're still doing uh, We're okay. going to do the oh, 1.30. I can't start the other one until 1.30. Right, right. Because I don't know who's coming just in the afternoon. Right. So the other one I'm going to start at 1.30. I can go through till 1.30 if people want to, because uh, I'm not going to be able to finish all of this before 12.30. <laughs> I have a question about the, uh, the land documents. I, I was reading yeah. about this in um, in Oh, in Noam yeah, yeah. And he, he talks about it, and he talks uh-huh. about how somebody brought up an alternative that you could see not doing the autopsy as passive murder. Because you know that sooner or later somebody's going to come in with this case again. Because, as you said, it's a very common thing. See, that, that is not accepted in Hello. It's not accepted. Absolutely not. The There's no such thing as passive murder? No such thing as passive murder in that particular case. Um, I, I mean, how do you get around it? clear fact that you are going to be letting people die by not doing autopsy. First of all, it's not so clear that you're going to be letting people die, and that's debate. And second of all, it's a complex world we live in, and this is an interesting issue, which I, I, I don't know how to resolve completely, but if we had an entire world where everybody was Jewish, it's quite possible that some of the research that's been done would not have been halakhly sanctioned. But we don't live in a world where everybody is Jewish and everybody's bound by halakha. We interact with another with the rest of the world where some people are not Jewish, some people are uh, subscribe to different religious beliefs, some people uh, and do these kinds of research, which we can benefit from. There's no prohibition for us benefiting from people who are doing research that we wouldn't necessarily prospectively have done. So we can't do it. So we, we correct, right. Correct. Correct. Right, but that's but but it's not like we're we're thinking that. No. It's not like we're saying, okay, we're gonna you know, sit back. We're not sitting back. We are involved tremendously in lots of areas of research. Both religious Jews and non religious Jews are involved in, in many areas of of scientific research, uh, but stem cell research is another area we're going to talk about in the afternoon. About you know, are there prohibitions that uh, that relate to that, which might preclude the use of stem cells for research? Uh, just because it can be done and might theoretically benefit, it doesn't mean that we sacrifice our religious beliefs. Um, and it's a complex way. I mean, it's, it's an interplay between between religious beliefs and science. Now, generally, we advocate advance of science, but not at all costs. Not at the cost. So, for example, if you had a great scientific technique. The only way you could, be, you could do it is if you did, uh, if you killed people. You have to kill five people, but 10,000 people could benefit. A million people could benefit. You're, you're, you're passively killing lives. You know, you're, you're not, uh, you're, you're preventing you this development. But it's not the way it works. Has value, so you can't say that. Right, right, right. But it's the same concept. I mean, there's a certain limit beyond which we will not go. But even even the preservation of the sanctity of the body is something which is extremely important. Now, some people stretch the notion of follow the phoneno, the application of this principle, to and, and may lower the threshold today and say that the amount of information that we could glean. I'm just going to start up again. Um, I just want to apologize. I'm obviously not going to be able to get through this entire handout by 12:30. Um, I will. Uh, I, I don't mind going afterwards. Those who want to stay, you're welcome to stay. Those who need to go, obviously uh, that would be wonderful. Uh, not wonderful, but <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be okay. <laughs> um, so let's um, let's try and get through whatever we can get through. The uh, just continuing on another dimension of the of anatomical dissection. As we turn to page seven, entitled "Resurrectionists of a Different Type," we read about another area which is a, uh, a direct correlate of, uh, of our previous discussion. We had uh, a discussion of the history of medicine and the fact that uh, from the Renaissance onwards, anatomical dissection became part of medical training. 
we have a, a, actually a curious phenomenon, which I, I guess I'm just thinking occurs to me now that uh, is analogous to the mumia trade. You had a desire for mumia, a, uh, a high demand of mumia, but a very low supply of mumia. Uh, so they had to resort to, uh, to using fraudulent mumia or using recently deceased bodies. In the Renaissance and thereafter, you had a very high demand now for all those in medical training for bodies for dissection. Now that dissection became an integral part of the medical training, they were faced with the dilemma of how to obtain bodies for dissection. Uh, and some of them were bequeathed, some of them were from, uh, from people that were uh, perhaps sentenced to death or people that uh, were homeless and, and didn't have anyone to claim the bodies, but that was clearly not sufficient in, in order to provide bodies for medical training for medical schools both in Europe and in the United States. So what you find actually is many people resorted to some uh, not so pleasant ways of, uh, of obtaining bodies for medical training and, uh, and to give you an idea of how prevalent grave robbing was in order to obtain bodies for anatomical dissection, uh, in the upper left-hand corner, you see the picture of Shakespeare and Shakespeare's epitaph, which sits on his gravestone, um, states, Good friend, for God's sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be ye man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. So there was a fear, even by Shakespeare, that people would dig up his body, and perhaps more so for Shakespeare than others, <laughs> that people would dig up his body and use his body uh, for medical training. We also find this in other areas of literature. In the upper right-hand corner, um, excerpted from Thomas Nash, The Unfortunate Traveler from 1594. Um, and it's a little difficult to read because the English spelling is somewhat different than our contemporary English spelling, but I'll read it for us. Uh, it was then the law in Rome that if any man had a, f a felon fallen in who into his hands, a felon, someone who had committed a crime, either by breaking into his house or robbing him by the highway, he might choose whether he would make him his bondman or hang him. Sadok, as all Jews are covetous, casting with himself... Uh, he should have no benefit by casting me off the ladder. Casting me off the ladder means the ladder for hanging. So he didn't want him to be hung, so he'd cast him off the ladder, he would be hung. Had, no, had another policy in his head. He went to one Dr. Zachary, the Pope's physician, that was a Jew, and his countrymen likewise, and told him that he had the finest bargain for him that might be. <coughs> Just a, a small historical parenthesis. Um, we talked about the fact that the Jews, that Vesalius had the Hebrew language, and that the Jews were considered the bearers of the, of the tradition of medicine throughout the centuries. And even though there was very explicit declarations in the church doctrine that no Catholics were allowed to be treated by Jewish physicians, there is not a single pope that didn't have a Jewish physician on his staff all because of this belief that the Jews, to this very day, that the Jews are great practitioners of medicine, they bear a certain tradition of medicine. So this fellow Zachary was the, uh, was the Pope's physician. It is not concealed from me, saith he, that the time of your accustomed yearly anatomy is at hand, which it behooves you under forfeiture of the foundation of your college very carefully to provide for. 
So everybody had an obligation to do, every physician, this is the Pope's physician, had an obligation to perform a dissection, and to perform that dissection, he needed a body. So this person had this individual that fell into his hands. <laughs> right, right into it, a hockey, right every seven years. The infection is great and will hardly get you a sound body to deal upon. So the infection is great means that it was a time of plague. And many of the bodies that he could have obtained for a dissection were probably riddled with disease and would not have been an ideal dissection for the, for the Pope's physician. So you are my countrymen, he says, this one Jew to the other Jew. Therefore, I come to you first. Be it known unto you, I have a young man at home fallen to me for my bondman. Go to, you are an honest man and one of the scattered children of Abraham. You shall have him as a big deal 500 crowns, just for you, because you're, uh, you're my launchman. So it gives you an idea, not only that people were doing grave robbing, but there, there was a notion that perhaps even the Jews were involved in providing bodies for, uh, for anatomical dissection. And it also, this was not extensive in the literature. There's only a handful of, uh, of these kinds of cases. But if you shift to, the, uh, to a diary, which was written in the 1800s, in the middle, left, middle of your handout, James Blake Bla uh, Bailey, Diary of a Resurrectionist. Um, and this, this copy that I consulted is actually housed at the New York Academy of Medicine. Um, this is my note, actually, right before the entries in 1812 in August. Uh, the author of this diary thought he owned the body trade. Uh, he and his cronies scouted out others who sold bodies to the medical school and attempted to sabotage them, as in the case of Israel Chapman below. So you have an entry in a diary of a resurrectionist. They were called the resurrectionists because they went to the cemeteries and they exhumed the bodies, resurrected the bodies. So the entry in 1812, Monday, August 24th, me and Ben went into the cart to different places to look out. Coming back from Charing Cross, met the Jews' drag, touted till dark and lost scent, came home. The next day, understood the Jew had brought a mail to Bartholomew. Bartholomew was a major medical center in London, met by appointment at the above place. So you have an indication that the Jews were involved somewhat, even in the shady business. Obviously, this isn't, uh, doesn't represent the majority of the Jewish population, yes. Um, yeah, make no mistake about it. This would not have been sanctioned according to halacha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on the record. Everything else off the record. That, that can go on the record. Um, and right above that, um, that, that passage from Ruth Richardson's Death Dissection and the Destitute, which is a, a modern historian of, uh, of these kinds of issues, um, says it is not known whether Chapman dealt only in Jewish bodies, but they were certainly highly sought after by the medical schools for reasons which were clear at that time. As the Jews bury early, their cemetery yields the best and freshest subjects, equal in freshness to the body sent to the venal undertaker, um, who, having interred sand, inwardly chuckles at the solemn words, dust to dust. <laughs> so you see that there was actually, ironically, the Jews are the ones that, that are so concerned about immediate burial and sanctification of the body even after death. Their bodies were considered preferable for dissection because they were, they were fresher, so to speak, because they were buried immediately. Um, there's, uh, there's another fascinating story. We talked about the University of Padua and the likes and universities in Europe. Um, this story took place, I don't think it was the University of Padua, but it was some university in, in northern Italy uh, where the Jews, there was, there was a, uh, 
a mob which uh, which uh, developed against the Jews because the Jews were not providing their bodies for dissection. We talked about the fact that the Jews are being discriminated against heavily in the medical schools, and this was just one more thing that they were that the uh, that the students were uh, were taking against the Jews, and that's the fact that they didn't contribute bodies for dissection. I said, "Listen, you're attending our medical schools. Why don't you contribute bodies to dissection?" <laughs> So the, a mob of medical students took the law into their own hand, and it just so happened the time of the year was Sukkot. And as some of you may have heard, in, in, uh, in the 1700s, 1800s in Europe, it was extremely difficult to get a hold of, an, of esrogim. The esrog, that citrus fruit, simply did not grow in Europe. They had to get it from other parts of the world. It was very difficult and very expensive to obtain. So it was not uncommon for certain communities to have one esrog for the entire community that they would simply pass around and transfer from, from, uh, from person to person or from neighborhood to neighborhood. And what happened is in this town in Europe, on, uh, on Cholomoid Sukkot, they were transferring the esrog from the Ashkenazi community to the Sephardic community. And this mob of students descended upon them and kidnapped the esrog. And they held it for ransom. They said, we will not give you back this one esrog which you have for the entire community to celebrate Sukkot unless you allow Jews to be dissected and give us rights to the, uh, to the Jewish bodies for anatomical dissection. Um, so they bargained with them and subsequently they were able to ransom the, uh, ransom the esrog. And fortunately, at least uh, you know, for the short term, they were able to, uh, to survive without having the bodies being dissected. Um, Parenthetically, if you would ask, were they halakhically obligated to spend an extraordinary amount of money to ransom that esrog? Uh, the answer is probably not. Uh, to the, the obligation to perform a mitzvah, um, especially positive commandment, the financial obligation to perform positive commandment, is, is uh, roughly is described in halakhic sources as a chomesh, or one-fifth of your financial wealth. So they weren't obligated to spend all the community's resources in order to obtain that, uh, that esrog. And I, I don't know what the financial amount they ultimately uh, settled on was for that, uh, that particular interaction. So the, the question was, what's the, what's the financial formula for preventing yourself from performing a, neg from performing a negative uh, a mitzvah, uh, violating, violating, a, uh, <laughs> for violating a, uh, a negative prohibition, a mitzvah slow say It is different. Uh, the, there... Um, the obligation is to expend all your financial resources, not one-fifth. So there is a financial difference between the mitzvah's assay and the mitzvah's los assay. Um, that, that also relates, by the way, to the amount of money that's required to, to save somebody's life, which is a discussion about live organ donation, how much money you have to spend in order to provide organs for people that need organs or to, uh, to ransom somebody, um, because the obligation there is, is phrased in a... Uh, negative fashion says, well, it's lo ta'amod al dam re'echa, don't stand by as the blood of your brother is being shed, but it's not an action, it's a passive, it's a passive uh, uh, mitzvah. So it, there's a debate amongst authorities whether it, it, it finds itself in the category of the mitzvah sase or the mitzvah slow sase, whether you have to do 20% or 100% of your finances. So this, um, this notion of, uh, of the grave robbing also spread from Europe to the United States. And the reason I'll mention this will be clear in a minute. Um, and if you read some fascinating excerpts from newspapers in Ohio, and I'll also be clear in a minute why I'm specifically targeting Ohio, um, in the 1800s, uh, from the uh, Ashtabula Sentinel, from Ashtabula, Ohio, November 4th, 1845, in the bottom of your handout, resolved that we most solemnly believe that those who have no regard for the dead 
can have but little respect for the living. And those who respect neither dead or living should never receive the confidence of the public. Resolve that the deprivation of morals consequent upon the disinterment of bodies and the annihilation of the better feelings and sentiments that usually follows a long familiarity with the horrid dissecting room renders it no very doubtful question whether medical colleges are not productive or more mischief than benefit to the country. So they were railing against these physicians who were training to be doctors to cure people, but at the same time were going to the cemeteries and exhuming bodies of dead people. So how could you respect somebody who doesn't, how could you go to a doctor who doesn't respect the dead? He's not going to respect the living either. And the next one is even, even sharper. In all parts of the country are established medical colleges. This is from the Zanesville Daily Courier in Zanesville, Ohio, November of 1878. Um, in all parts of the country are established medical colleges. In fact, a second-class city is not thought to be complete unless the medical college is established within its limits. Here collect ignorant professors to, to lecture still more ignorant pupils. Surgery? Not one in a hundred knows anything whatever about surgery. But bodies must be secured to make the brainless youths believe the brainless professors know something about surgery. These brainless youths who will soon be turned out to prey, like a set of harpies upon the people, must be taught, however, to make sport over the remains of some body which has been stolen from where relatives and friends have tenderly placed it. It is a most disgraceful thing that the people are preyed upon by ignorant blockheads who sail under the name physicians. What? Okay. I'm sorry, what was the question? Were they, yeah, were people guarding the bodies? Well, as a result of this, they were guarding the bodies. And, and, oh, does it, does it, is it based on this? No, 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 no. Older than, the concept of Shmirah and the, and the having someone with the, with the body predates the, the notion of the concern of, uh, of grave robbing. But you'll see it, the, your question is, is, is directly on target, um, as evidenced by the next chuva. Next chuva on page eight is, is, uh, was presented to a Euro European rabbi, Ben Sion Ben Aryeleib Sternfeld, in the late 19th century, which is roughly the time that these two articles were written in Ohio. <coughs> and he was asked the following question. You see the halachic ramifications here again. You see halachic ramifications of, the, of whatever is going on in the, in the world around them, in the world of science and medicine. Sheila boy ear Cincinnati, me Medinas America. I was asked a question from the city of Cincinnati, Ohio, in America. Vizelishano, and this is the the question. in our city, nega oznov. Something that you will not believe your ears if you hear the practice that's going on in the in the city of Cincinnati and in America. Uh, there are many medical schools and they learn the practice of anatomy and they need bodies they need cadavers and it has been described that they have removed hundreds if not thousands of people from cemeteries and there's a, it's become commercialized. People are providing bodies and they're getting compensation for providing the bodies. And they send them to other, uh, and they send them to other uh, cities. 
Vanachrim asu ma'aros ba'adama al beis ha'kvaros shalahem. So some of the non-Jews made caves in the ground or made certain kind of provisions to prevent people from grave robbing. Um, and they will keep these, keep these bodies in these special caverns to protect them from the grave robbers and then they'll take the bodies out in the summertime and they'll reinter them in the summertime. Afterwards, they'll do a, a proper burial. I guess when the, when school is uh, is is on vacation and, and there's the risk of, of the bodies being desecrated by grave robbing is small. And the wealthy people amongst us who are concerned about the about the uh, their loved ones after they pass on will will hire shomrim, will hire uh, guards. So the, the cemetery happened to have been a far, far place away. But in, and I won't read through the rest of the tshuva, but I'll read through the conclusion. So the question was, this is a serious halachic question. They were concerned about the desecration of the body. The only way they assumed to prevent the desecration of the body was to inter the body in a non-optimal halachic fashion for a period of time, which meant keeping the body above ground or not burying the body or putting the body in some kind of cavern. Uh, which, which is not necessarily halakhically sanctioned. We bury within the ground. Um, even though historically, and if you go to Israel too, and you go to the, the chorus of Sanhedria or Kivrei Malachim uh, near the old city, you'll see that they used to initially bury in kuchin, in, in holes in the wall. Uh, and and that, was a, that was probably a provisional burial um, until the bones, until, until the body uh, completely... Uh, Disintegrated, and then they would reinter the bones, uh, usually in, in a different location. Um, hence, by the way, the the ossuary, yeah. uh, the ossuary. I mean, they found in antiquity many of these ossuaries, which which look like uh, caskets, but they're this big. They said, "Oh, people must have been midgets in those days. How could they bury in such small coffins?" But what they were, in fact, is they were. Uh, they were used after the person had died and had a provisional burial. They collected, is called asefas uh, atzamos. They collected the bones uh, and they put the bones in the asuary. Asuary is uh, etymologically bone bone box in essence, um, and uh, and they transferred the bone box then to the to the family burial site. Um, and there's that controversy now for those of you who follow the world of archaeology about this bone box, which is apparently the bones of the brother of Jesus. Uh, and the inscription of uh, you know James, brother of Jesus, on this ossuary, whether indeed it belongs to him or not, or whether the inscription was written many uh, many years later, and the person who supposedly owns it is now being uh, indicted in Israel for for fraud. Um, so he was presented with a very serious halachic problem: Can we revise our burial practices? Can we violate halacha in order to uh, to to uh, to prevent this uh, this concern about about grave robbing? So what he said subsequently, and we skip to the underlying section, He said, I do agree that this is enough of a concern to justify a deviation from the normative practices of burial. Um, on the provision that these burial crypts be within the ground, they can be superficial and not very deep in the ground, but they have to be connected to the ground somewhat. And he talks in more detail that you should use, you shouldn't use um, artificial substances, but you should really use the dirt from the ground. 
um, because if you don't inter the body at least with some connection to the ground <coughs> then it is really not any form of burial and that would be a violation of the prohibition of delaying burial uh, you shouldn't delay, uh, delay the burial because it really is the desecration to God's name um, etc <coughs> so that was his his concession to a very real halachic problem based on this uh, on these fears of, of uh, grave robbing and just to complete the circle of this of this grave robbing issue <coughs> many people um, did devise very very uh, interesting creative ways to prevent the grave robbers from from getting at their grave and as you look at the picture on the bottom left you see a grave which to this very day is in England which is covered by solid iron gates, which makes it virtually impossible for a grave robber to access. And like everything else, there was commercialization of these kinds of, uh, of uh, paraphernalia for, uh, for interment. And one of the ads from the Wooler's British Gazette from October 13, 1822, uh, and I quote, said, the many hundred uh, bodies, dead bodies will be dragged from their wooden coffins this winter for the anatomical lectures which have just commenced, the articulators, and for those who deal in the dead for the supply of the country practitioner and the Scotch schools, schools from Scotland. The question of the right to inter an iron is now decided. The violation of the sanctity of the grave is said to be needful for the instruction of the medical pupil. But let each one about to inter a mother, husband, child, or friend say, <coughs> shall I devote this object of my affection to such a purpose? If not, the only safe coffin is Bridgman's patent wrought iron one. <laughs> Charged the same price as the wooden one and a superior substitute for lead. So these are, this is an advertisement which appeared in your local newspaper for people to purchase grave sites and special materials to prevent their bodies from being grave robbed. Yes. Yeah. It didn't have enough. Keep in mind, there was a tremendous proliferation of medical schools throughout the country. Uh, and, and, I'll, and, and I'll share with you in a minute a fascinating story of how the whole thing changed radically um, and which were the beneficiaries of this change to this very day. Um, but just another, another uh, uh, cute uh, poem which was written, um, the surgeon's warning right underneath, if they carry me off in the patent coffin, their labor will be in vain, but the undertaker see it bought of the maker who lives in St. Martin's Lane. So this person, St. Martin's Lane, was a famous maker of these kinds of coffins, and uh, people were excited about it. On the bottom right hand, you have these two figures whose name was Burke and Hare. Uh, and their antics led to the entire uh, restructuring of the provision of bodies for dissection for the medical schools. And what these guys did is they... Um, uh, Burke, actually, who's, who's pictured on the right hand, is probably more responsible for this. He owned a little inn up in northern England, and uh, one of the people that was at the inn, it mainly uh, was for derelicts and homeless people, and one of the people at the inn owed him a tremendous amount of money, and he died before he could, uh, he could pay him back. And he was very annoyed, and he was trying to figure out, what can I do, and how am I going to get this money back? So he, he, had, a, he had a revelation. He said, uh, let me sell his body. I'll take his body, I'll bring it to the medical school in London. They're always eager for bodies. There's a big black market at that time. And, uh, and I'll sell his body. 
And that's what he did. And he got whatever quid he got, however many pounds he got. He got a fair amount of money. And he said, this is great. It's a very easy way to get money. So what he started to do is he started to take the... And you see how one thing leads to another. He actually started to kill people who checked into his hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, to say that's what it is. So, um, you know, the, the, it's a different, different application. You know, you check in, but you don't check out, right? So these are the type of people that, that checked in. And these were largely derelicts that he thought would go unnoticed. That no one would ever miss them. You know, they were prost local prostitutes or, 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 or homeless people who didn't have... A, and, and he systematically started to, started to kill them, and he, and he suffocated them so the bodies wouldn't be destroyed. And then he started to provide the bodies to the medical school. And then he got so greedy, he started to take people that were known in town. And people caught on, and finally he was, he was exposed for what he was. And he was hanged in a very public, large public hanging. And this trial was a notorious trial, which was spread uh, across the newspapers in England for, for a number of months. And, and led, I'm sorry? This was Burke and Hare, and, and the adage goes, Burke is the person who did the killing, Hare is the person who delivered the bodies, and Knox, Professor Knox, was the professor at the medical school. So the, the, uh, the phrase was, Burke's the butcher, Hare's the thief, Knox the man who buys the beef. And, uh, and actually, if you look in the dictionary today, there is a word called burking uh, in the dictionary, and it means to suffocate somebody. Uh, and that comes, from, that comes from Burke, from Burke and Hare. So after this trial, there was a huge expose of the black market of providing bodies. As a result, there was uh, the entire you know, trade changed. They made laws that all un unclaimed bodies could now officially go to the medical schools. They were transferred to the medical schools. It was, the, it was called the Universal Anatomical Gift Act in the 1850s in London. And, and the American laws today of how bodies are donated are largely based on the British paradigm from the 1850s, which is largely as a result of the, of the famous trial of, of Burke and Hare um, back in that period of time. Okay, let's turn the page. It's interesting, actually. We talked about the fact that in a period of time they were not doing dissection in the Renaissance. They reinstituted anatomical dissection. Now the pendulum is swinging the other way. Now medical schools, and Michelle and I were having this discussion, actually, uh, the medical schools are, are, are cutting back on anatomy. They're making the courses smaller. And now, I just read last week, for the very first time, now they have all these visual aids and they have computers and, and, and wonderful computer programs that can give you three-dimensional and turn it and, and give you a remarkable way to do it. I'll get you a question in one second. And, um, and for the first time I saw, there's a medical school which has decided, in the first medical school in the history of the modern era, that it's going to offer anatomy without human dissection very first medical school. They just got their charter to, do, uh, to, to provide anatomy without dissection. Yes. I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Having, having, doing what I'm doing now and having gone to a medical school where we did a full semester dissection for the people to a body and also having gone to the <coughs> Einstein, they do just two days and things like that. And he said, practically, I think we need to come I need to make a huge difference. I don't think there's <coughs> I, I actually agree 100%. The question is, even though that's a, that's a fact, can you just make the hands-on on a required basis? So a radiologist doesn't need hands-on. Maybe an interventional radiologist does. A surgeon obviously does. Does a dermatologist need to do extensive <laughs> dissection of the entire body? 
So, uh, no, so you might want to incorporate it into the, into the residency training as opposed to the medical school training. I'm just, you know, playing devil's advocate. There's no, I mean, the question is, even though your statement is true, how much of what you did in your medical school semester did you remember and apply from putting in your central lines in the ER? Probably not much. You had to relearn it when you did your residency. Very small amounts. I mean, I can't speak for you. You, you maybe paid more attention to that than I did. But I, the amount that you apply from medical school. So if you, you need to do it, and you, you should do it on a, on a, uh, on a necessary basis, but, but there has to be some medium which is uh, stricken. Yes? That actually relates to the true of the no to behuda, the responsum of the no to behuda we read. Um, and and uh, while it's not absolutely agreed upon, the uh, donating the body for uh, to the medical school doesn't, according to many authorities at least, meet the threshold of uh, of, of a of somebody that will directly and immediately benefit. While it's true, it does provide e for educational purposes. Um, for the, for the doctors who need to train and ultimately need to save lives, but, but the cause effect and the direct benefit is not as immediate, which would be sufficient to allow somebody just to donate their bodies for medical research alone. Uh, having said that, there are some rabbinic authorities that would allow it. Uh, it became an issue, actually, um, when, when Israel opened its medical schools and they were faced with the dilemma of the only way they could be accredited is if they provided anatomical dissection and there weren't sufficient bodies to provide from non-Jews for the, for the dissection. They had to provide Jewish bodies. Uh, and is, would it, was it okay for them to provide Jewish bodies? Um, and, and Rav Goren, in a very famous responsa, responsum, said that uh, they, were, they would be allowed to use Jewish bodies because there is a chol that the entire country needs physicians. In the absence of our ability to, to provide medical schools that are accredited, we will not have physicians of our own to take care of our people that need to be treated for disease. So, so he allowed uh, the use of Jewish bodies for dissection in the Israeli medical schools. Um, actually, for those of you who need to, uh, need to go, now's a good time to uh, we can break for those of you who need to go. And then I'll... I'm going to continue, actually, for those who want to... Uh, the second session will begin at 1.30. So I guess we'll break uh, at 1.15 for... Uh, yeah. I mean, those of you who want to... I mean, <laughs> for lunch, right? <laughs> lunch from 1.15 to 1.16. And then we'll have... I'm going to deal with the issue of the... Of the re of reconciliation between science and the time and scientific... Uh, yeah, do that. I'll skip to that now if you want. Yeah, I'm very interested. Okay, in great, great. Okay, okay, so I'll do that. Right, right, okay, great. So Professor Lukashak appropriately said, since we did list the, uh, the issue of the conflict of science, um, let's, let's go straight to that. Maybe what we'll do is we'll do that for about 20 minutes or so. Yeah, that's, uh, that's at the, the afternoon session. That starts at 1.30. starts at 1. It ends uh, 4.30. If that's going to end 4.30, I have to be out here. It's 4.30. Um, so let's spend the next few minutes. Maybe we'll go for about, 10, about 15, 20 minutes, and then we'll break. The, um, the interface between the science and um, the areas of conflict of science and, uh, and halacha. And if you turn to page 11 on your handout, and I'll just do a... Uh, 
do some of these areas, and they're really fascinating areas. Um, trefa. A, a concern, obviously, with this, as we mentioned, the, uh, the Pita expose uh, and the laws of slaughtering and the laws of kashras. Uh, of animals, right. I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, they, they had these videos, graphic videos of animals that were slaughtered according to the kosher laws of slaughter. Uh, and they said it wasn't done with, uh, in the humane fashion that it should have been done. I'm not going to comment on that. I'll leave that for the, for the OU, OU to comment on. We'll leave that, we'll leave that for another discussion. <coughs> but trafe actually is, not used, is, is used colloquially today to mean something generally that's not kosher. But in halakhic literature, trefa means something very specific. Trefa means a certain defect in an animal from which the animal will likely die, or according to some authorities, will absolutely die within one year's time, within 12 months. And any animal that possesses any of those anatomical abnormalities is trefa. Is, pro is prohibited from eating even if it's slaughtered appropriately. It doesn't matter. If it has that anatomical defect, it is, it's a violation to, uh, to eat those things. So they realized in the, in, at certain periods in history that some of these animals possessed these defects which were described in, in the literature from the Talmud but still lived more than 12 months. So it raised a very serious dilemma. Are these animals kosher or are they not kosher? Our tradition tells us that if they live, that they shouldn't live for 12 months. Maybe if they live longer for, than 12 months, maybe they're indeed okay to eat. So this question was posed to the Rashba <coughs> in the 13th century. Um, Behema, reading from the top of page 11, Behema shenim says yoseres aver, bos and evarim sheni trefes bohem, ubemakom sheni trefes bo, an animal that has an additional limb or, a, or one less limb, which according to the tradition of what would be considered a trefa and prohibited to eat and should not live for 12 months. And someone observes that this animal indeed lives for greater than 12 months. Should we say that the very fact that it lives longer than 12 months is a testimony to the fact that the animal can't be a trefa, and therefore we should allow us to eat it? It should be kosher. The trefa enochaya, shnei um, chodesh, because a trefa shouldn't theoretically live more than 12 months. Even though I've seen some rabbinic authorities have allowed such animals to be eaten and consider them indeed kosher, I want to know what your opinion is, the famous Rashba, who was one of the great rabbinic decisors of the, of the 13th century. And the Rashba says, If somebody, if you hear any rabbi who gives you a permissive ruling on this and is lenient and says that this animal is kosher, says, Al Tishmalo, do not listen to him. There should be no such position amongst the, uh, amongst the leaders of Israel. And anybody who makes this animal kosher, who decides that this animal is kosher, is, is slandering the rabbis who said such an animal is considered trafe. And skipping to the... Uh, to the, the fifth line, the, after the few dots, umashemanu chachomim miklolon, ef shalohem b'shum tzad, 
Lavoli de Hetula Olam. Um, certain anatomical defects, these Yudches, these 18 types of trefos that the rabbis decided in the Talmudic period, um, can never be changed and can never be permitted forever. Even if you observe, theoretically, he says that these animals with this anatomical defect live longer than 12 months, they are still treif. The Kevin Shikane, I feel Yotsu Kamav Yomru Tachreinu, Eid Anumakhishinoso. We will negate any testimony that says otherwise. And I'm skipping a few lines. The, the, the line that starts, V'yavatel. One thousand witnesses should be refuted rather than diminish one aspect of anything that the rabbis have taught us. So he, in essence, says that, that Chazal are correct, the rabbis are correct, and the science is wrong. The science cannot. Be, the science is wrong. The rabbis stand stand correct. Now, why does he why does he say this? Now, trefa is a unique circumstance, and we have to be careful not to apply this to all other circumstances, because the halachas of trefos are considered halacha l'Moshe misinai. They're considered to be directly transmitted from Moshe Rabbeinu from Moses on the on, on Har Sinai. So the concern about refuting these laws which come down directly are not man-divine laws. These are God-ordained laws. And the, the preservation of these laws is very, very, very uh, tremendous concern. And that's why the Rashba was so severe. The Chazonish that I'll just describe outside and won't read inside has a very novel approach to this issue of trefos. You said that you think the That's a good point. Now, he's, he's, saying, he's saying they can't be correct, or even if they are correct, it doesn't... He's, he's, he's really more saying that they can't be correct. And you'll see the Chazanish is slightly different. He's really more saying that they can't be correct, because this is, this is the way it has to be. That the, that, the, the science, that the determination of these animals with these trefos living more than 12 months can't be correct. And he actually says more specifically, it might not stand up to further scrutiny. You know, if you look at these animals, it may not be the exact thing which the rabbis described. These animals may not indeed be living 12 months. Um, so he was really, he was really staunch defender of the, of the tradition. Now the Chazon Ish says, and this is much, much later, this is 20th century. I'm just sharing some of the highlights. He says that it's true that there are certain conditions which 12, uh, that in the times of the Talmud, they indeed did not live 12 months, but today we might observe that they live longer. And we also might have cures for some of these things that they didn't have cures back in those days. He acknowledges the evolution of medicine, but he says methodologically the laws of Trefos were established based on the understanding of the time that the rabbis established them. So even though the reality might have changed, we are bound legally by the way the laws were established at the time they were established. And that's a very novel approach. Not everybody subscribes to that particular approach. But here again, I hasten to add, these are discussions about trefa where there's a particular concern about the fact that the laws of trefa are, are halachal moshe misina, were transmitted from, uh, from our Sina. Now, to the next page, another area, and here also, uh, for, in the interest of time, I'll just describe outside. We won't go into, into the sources in detail. <coughs> But there's a notion which finds its expression in the Talmud and even in subsequent sources of, um, of a dis distinguish distinguishing between different gestational ages of a baby. That there's a baby that's born at seven months 
gestation, there's a baby that's born at eight months gestation, and there's a baby that's born at nine months gestation. And then a baby that's born at seven months will live, and a baby that's born at nine months will live, but a baby that's born in the eight months in the eight month period of gestation will die. Where did they get this? So where did this notion come from? And, and on your bottom, there's three, three reasons for the theory where it's, which were ex- extracted from a number of different sources, from the works of Hippocrates and some other uh, later, later authorities. Um, so just like the seven-chamber theory evolved from imagination and evolved from philosophy to some extent, per- perhaps numerology to, to another extent, um, there were a number of reasons why this theory evolved. There's anatomical reasons why it evolved, perhaps in the eight months the, the uterus is not susceptible to, to giving birth to a child. This is belief, again, nothing. This is the reality understood today. But in the eight, in the eight months of the gestation, that the womb was simply not uh, susceptible to, to delivering a baby that would be born healthy. There were mathematical reasons. that the, Mathematically, in the eighth, eighth month, it wasn't divisible by a certain number, and if it's not divisible by a certain number, the odds are that the child would not survive. And their astrological beliefs that each month of gestation was, was associated with the planet. The eighth month of gestation was associated with Saturn. Saturn was thought to be associated with death. There's no way a child born under Saturn could ever survive. Um, so these, these are many different theories about how the eight-month the theory developed. But it was an extremely prevalent and absolutely accepted fact in the history of medicine for many, many centuries. And finds its expression in the rabbinic sources. To such an extent that the halacha was, and I'm just paraphrasing from some of the sources on the page, that if a child is born at seven months, you're allowed to violate Shabbos to save its life. If a child is born at nine months, you're allowed to violate Shabbos to save its life. If a child is born and you are certain that it's eight months gestation, you're not allowed to violate Shabbos to save its life. I'm sorry? So that's the question. We now know that it's possible to save children at gestational ages from six months onwards. And that there seems to be, in our literature, no distinction between a child born in seven months gestation and eight months gestation. Nine, well, there are distinctions. But in fact, eight months gestation has a better survival rate than seven months because it's longer in the womb. Well, I mean, that's, that's common knowledge to us. Right. The lungs are more developed and the, and the, and the survival rates are clearly higher. <coughs> so how do you deal with this? You have rabbinic sources that talk about something which we now today believe to be different. So the Chazonish says, and it's the same Chazonish, but he has a different, a different approach to this particular topic. He says, Nishtana HaTeva. The nature has changed. We, and, and how you explain this phrase, nature has changed, is itself, we, we could spend many hours just on that discussion. People have written books on that. For those of you who are interested, I can refer you to the literature. Um, but in essence, it can, be, it can be construed in a number of different ways. Way number one is, is, is the nature has indeed changed. That an eight-month baby born in the Talmudic times would have had a less survival rate. And today, that same child in that same gestational age is just living. That the times have changed. The physiology has changed. The science has changed. Or alternatively, and some might have difficulty accepting that. Alternatively, I'm sorry? Why did he have less chance before? Right. That's a good question. What's the basis of that? It's hard, it's hard to say. Hard to say. It, it, would, it, would be pure, it would be pure speculation. I thought I remember reading somewhere that seven was considered the perfect number, so I said, look, there's seven wandering 
Right. All these kinds of philosophical beliefs and theological beliefs. Yes. I'm only going back 20 years, and I know when I was giving birth, they were they were calculating to the day to make sure, because I was giving birth early, that my daughter was not in the eighth month. And they were very, very worried because they seemed to feel that the lining of the lungs, if you're born in the seventh month, then they have a better chance because that process hasn't gotten to the point where it's critical as it is in the eighth month. <coughs> I'm not going back to that. Right, right. And we were very upset. Kennedy's son, Patrick, was an eight-month baby, and it was an all-in-news report that if he had just uh, been delivered a month later, then he would have survived, but he was an eight-month baby. And so this, this eight-month notion is obviously still pervades. And, and we could argue, I mean, we could, we could do an extensive literature search about the possible physiological reasons, and I don't know whether they exist or don't exist. So the, the Chazanish says that the nature has changed. In, in, in the underlying section of the Chazanish, in the upper left-hand corner over there, it says, that these eight-month children are, are indeed surviving. So here, they accepted the reality of the change, and they changed the halacha. You are indeed allowed to violate Shabbos today for an eight-month baby. And it's a pretty radical thing, saying couldn't violate Shabbos now. Shabbos is a very sacred thing, as we'll talk about in the stem cell research talk in the afternoon. So that's another area of, of the conflict. And if we turn to page 13. So does that mean that in some cases, So the question is, in some cases, scientific evidence, can you change that law? In some cases, you can't. So here, and, I, and I'm going to state this for the record, um, this, this uh, endeavor of analyzing topics that were different in Talmudic times in, in today's times, in the conflicts of science and halacha, in the application of our modern understanding to the changing of age-old halacha, is one which you and I cannot do. This is not something that's left to the individual. It's not left to the scientists. It's not left to the, to the layman. It's left to the rabbinic uh, authorities to decide when and if changes in science can indeed affect the law. Now, there will be circumstances where it will not be able to affect the law based on perhaps methodological reasons or legalistic reasons. There may be cases where indeed it could affect the law. Uh, and it is, it is exceedingly complex. And I don't want to minimize it. And I don't want to simplify it. It is, it is one, of the, one of the more complex issues of the application of modern technology to the interface of Jewish law. And one which I'm always hesitant. I know people are interested in hearing about it, but I confess I'm a little hesitant to talk about it in public fora because of the, the potential of people misapplying things that I say and walking out and, and, and erroneously believing that since science has changed, we can now discard the, the previous laws that, uh, that have been discussed for centuries. That is absolutely categorically not the case. But I'd like to just finish um, our morning discussion with, with one of the other more famous areas where, uh, where science and, and halacha seemingly uh, uh, are, at, are at the loggerheads with each other. And that is page 13. And that is the case, based on the Talmud, of this uh, getting us back again to Shabbos, um, about the, a particular insect called a kina. Now the halacha is, you're not allowed to kill living things on Shabbos. You can't kill an animal on Shabbos. You obviously can't take a human life at any time, let alone Shabbos. Um, but the question is, what is the halacha of killing a kina? Now kina is loosely translated as a louse, or lice. Um, so the Gemara says, a kina b'shabbos, according to one position, kehore gamal b'shabbos. 
you kill life on Shabbos, it's like you kill the camel on Shabbos. There's no distinction. They're both living beings. Yosef, Ad Rabbanan um, so Rabbanan disagree, and Rabbanan say no. Kina, um, you are you are allowed to kill on Shabbos. Why are you allowed to kill a, light, a louse on Shabbos, but you can't, but you can't kill other animals? Because the Gemara says the Eina Para Virava. What does Para Virava mean? Pira Virivia, because they don't sexually reproduce. So this has been understood by us today, and I'm not saying this is the only interpretation. This has been understood that what the Gemara is in essence saying is that these insects spontaneously generate. And since they generate spontaneously, for halachic, based on this Gemara, they are halachically not included in the prohibition of taking life on Shabbos because their life was not produced from sexual reproduction, it was produced from spontaneous generation. So is that true? Are they produced spontaneously? So here again, an understanding of medical history is absolutely essential. For thousands of years, it was common belief that many, many living organisms produced, were produced spontaneously. Spontaneous generation was taught in every medical school and every school of science for thousands of years. And why was it taught? How, how could, I mean, why did they believe this? Because many other things which, which uh, in science, especially in history of science, in the pre-microscopic areas, area, uh, ages of science, this was based on observation. If you take a piece of meat and you leave it on the table and you come back an hour later, there are thousands of insects flying around. Where do they come from? I didn't see them get there. They must have spontaneously generated. <coughs> so this is extremely pervasive and accepted as absolute dogma fact without any questioning by everybody, the greatest minds of science. So when did that change? It changed in the, in the 1600s. It began to change in the 1600s, and the final nail in the coffin was placed in the 1700s. But a famous experiment on the bottom of Tancordia, the front, front page of this famous work by uh, Francesco Reddy, who performed fantastic, elegant, simple experiments in the history of medicine. He took a number of flasks, a number of jars. He put meat in every single one. He covered half of them, and he left half of them uncovered. And then he came back the next day. And he found, lo and behold, the ones that were covered, with some exception, by the way, if they happened to have been microscopic organisms before he covered, but by and large, the ones that were covered had no maggots, had no insects, and the ones that were uncovered were teeming with insects. Very simple experiment. But it took 2,000 years for somebody to do it to realize that these insects don't generate spontaneously. And the, it, that was on a macrocosmic level. On a microcosmic level, Pasteur is the one who did more elegant experiments to show that it just doesn't occur. There is absolutely nothing like spontaneous generation. All, all cells generate sexually, re reproduce sexually. I mean, there are actually some exceptions in, in science. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of living organisms reproduce by sexual reproduction. So, he, <coughs> so here you have in the bottom right-hand corner... Yitzhak <coughs> Lampranti, who is a, a, a great rabbi who parenthetically went to this University of Padua and is listed on my list of graduates from the University of Padua as a physician, graduated as a physician. He wrote the very first halachic encyclopedia. It's an alphabetical encyclopedia from Aleph to Tuf uh, and incorporates many things in science. And he says, I'm the young uh, physician rabbi. He loved the he 
So he said, I'm a scientist, and I learned when I went to University of Padua that there is no such thing as spontaneous generation. And if there's no such thing as spontaneous generation, then maybe I should look at this Laos and say, since the, the, the Torah tells us, or the law is, you're, you're allowed to kill this. I want to be machmir. I want to be more stringent and say, since I know that this Laos does generate sexually and does not generate spontaneously, maybe I shouldn't kill the louse either. So he went to his rabbi, Rav Brill, and he posed this question. And his rabbi said, no, you have to maintain the halacha. Even though you're trying to be machmir, you're trying to be more strict. He said, you are not even allowed to be more strict in this application. You are allowed to kill the kina. And the chazonish said, I'm sorry, Rav Dessler, in the upper left-hand corner, and I'll just summarize it, he in essence says, um, that there are a number of areas of conflict. How are we to deal with some of these areas of conflict? So he says that it might be true that indeed the Talmud may have referred to spontaneous generation, but the law is not based on the reason that was given. The law, as the absolute fact that it is permitted to kill a louse on Shabbos, was transmitted from Sinai. It was transmitted uh, down from the times of, uh, of Moshe Rabbeinu. The explanations that were given in subsequent generations <coughs> were given simply to be appealing to the people at that time who were reading those explanations. So for someone in the times of the Gemara, spontaneous generation was an accepted fact. This would have been a palatable explanation for the distinction between kina and non-kina. Does that mean that if we subsequently realize that kina don't spontaneously generate, that the law should be changed? No. The law was set in motion independent of the reasons which were given by the rabbis. And he, mentioned, and he mentions a whole a host of other different kinds of reasons. Yes? Yeah, that, I mean, that's an excellent question. Um, and, and the truth is, you have to take each case on a case-by-case basis. Um, and here's where I said, you know, if you have new discovery, there's a difference between taking something that was existent at the time of the Talmud, and we are analyzing the very same thing and we see a difference, and then taking something which is a new discovery, which they never envisioned theoretically envisioned in the Talmud and finding new precedent uh, to, to apply to that. That's a wholly different, uh, it's a wholly different endeavor. Um, but there's a letter, and I'm not sure, I thought I had it, I don't know if someone accidentally took any other articles. Um, I had a copy of an article which, which possessed a letter from Rav Shumshin Rafal Hirsch, which, which beautifully describes how, um, how, the, uh, how to view some of these issues. Now we've, we've talked it during the course of our, our, our hours, we've talked about a number of these notions which we find to be somewhat uh, uh, curious in our, based on our modern understanding, and we seem to have disproven them, and then they no longer exist, and we no, no longer believe them to be true. So in essence, Rav Shemshin Hirsch said, um, and this is a position espoused by the Rambam as his predecessor, and not necessarily espoused by all, uh, you know, the rabbis, especially in the later periods, not necessarily in the Talmudic periods, were, were legal scholars. Um, they could not have been expected to know all of science, and furthermore, could not have been expected to personally prove all elements of science. Now, you pick up a newspaper, and you read about stem cell research. How many people here have seen an embryonic stem cell research? How do you know that a stem cell even exists? You take it on fact from the people that are doing the research. They have a reputation, and, and you assume that it's correct. What the rabbi then does is he takes this information based on what he has taught, or what he is told by the contemporary scientists, and incorporates it, and, and then deals with it from a halakhic perspective, assuming that it's fact. But you can't expect the rabbi to go to the ends of the earth to prove that everything that he reads in the paper, or that someone asks the question about, is indeed true. He assumes that it's true, and then he deals with it from a halakhic perspective. 
So it is not disrespectful to say that the rabbis of the Middle Ages were talking about a seven-chambered uterus. It is not disrespectful to say that the rabbis prior to the 16th century were talking about spontaneous generation. Quite the contrary. It's clear that they were abreast of what was then very contemporary science. We now know that not to be the case, or believe that not to be the case. So we now deal with the law based on our modern understanding. It in no way diminishes or detracts from the greatness of the, of the rabbis. And if the law needs to be changed, then we'll talk on a case-by-case basis whether it, de- it indeed can be changed. So I think we'll, we'll conclude. I mean, we've obviously covered a fair amount of material. As you can well see, there's much more material we could have covered. But I hope as an introductory lecture, you at least have an appreciation that the, the interface of Jewish law and science is not new to the 20th or 21st century. It's something that has been continuing for, that has started many centuries ago. And in our afternoon lecture in 20 minutes, we will, uh, we will begin a topic which pushes us well into the 21st century and probably into the 21st and 2nd century as we, as we apply the same methodology of Rav David Ben Zimmer about mumias to new and exciting modern technologies.